What if you could build an automated strategy that navigates all market conditions? And while we know there's no one-size-fits-all strategy, we believe that you can design a bot strategy that assesses the market trend and proactively adapts to current market conditions. This trader's dream finally manifested itself in a bot template that became the collective brainchild of the amazing community of traders we have right here at Option Alpha. The Hexabot, as it's now lovingly referred to as, was a labor of love, and we are super excited to share with you today. On this episode, we'll introduce you to the Hexabot and share the entire story of its origin. Hey everyone, this is Kirk here again from OptionAlpha.com, working every single week to make this the most popular investing podcast offered online because it's based on one thing and one thing only, and that's helping you consistently place smarter trades. So again, thank you so much for tuning in today, and welcome back to show number 223, quite possibly one of our longest shows that we've recorded, but you're going to love this one today because Ryan and I are sitting down and we're going through the entire Hexabot story. So if you don't know what the Hexabot is, it's a brand new bot template that we built and we put into the community a few weeks ago. It has quite possibly one of the longest descriptions that we've ever written for a bot template. But as you'll see in today's podcast, there's a reason why we took so much time and so much effort in detailing and documenting and planning and researching and building this bot template because we hope it's an amazing bot template that you can use for your trading moving forward, or you can use and modify and edit for your own versions of the Hexabot moving forward. You know, what's really cool about this bot template, and we'll talk about it here as I welcome Ryan here in a second, and we get started with the origin and kind of some of the background. But what's really cool about this particular bot template that we built is that we really wanted to build a bot for all market conditions, a bot that traded actively, did so intelligently, respected momentum and trend, but also was cognizant of short-term changes in technical indicators, overbought and oversold levels, and basically gave you an opportunity, automated trading strategy for very specific ticker settings and parameters, and do so in every market environment. Now, we think you're going to really love the story and the background and hearing all the intricacies around the Hexbot. In fact, when we posted this template in the community, A lot of people already started asking, can we get a podcast about it? Can we get some videos about it? So we'll continue to publish more and more on the Hexabot. And hopefully it's a great example of how you can spend your time and your energy invested in research and development and planning, and then let automated trading take over the actual execution of a strategy, let you trade with less emotion, more systematically and better than ever. So here's the story of the Hexabot. And let's get Ryan on here we'll start going through it. You're listening to the Option Alpha podcast from OptionAlpha.com, where we show you how to make smarter trades, learn how the stock market really works, and generate consistent monthly income. Monthly income. Now, your host and head trader at OptionAlpha.com, Kirk Duplessis. All right. So, hey, Ryan, welcome again, man. Hey, man. Excited. Excited to talk about this one today. Uh, we've talked about this one for a long time. So it's like, if we don't go at least one day without talking about it, yeah, I don't think we, we haven't done that in the entirety of the building of this. So this is going to be fun. And I'm It'll glad to be here. It'll bring a little bit of, of closure to finally get to talk about it here on the pod. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of people have been asking for something that kind of goes through this without the long write-up, even though we're going to use the long write-up that's in the uh, the podcast or the template description in the community, but I think this will give a little bit more context to people and give them a little bit more insight into 
particularly some of the background stuff, some of the challenges that we ran into building this out and some of the things that we worked through. So it's going to be really fun. I hope everyone has a nice cup of coffee or a drink or something can just kind of sit down and sit back and uh, hear us and go through this together. So, all right. So I think the first thing that we're going to start with in today's discussion of the Hexabot, I think really is a little bit of origin background that I think everyone has to understand. So there's three main things that we said in the main template description inside the community. And they're so important that we have to reiterate them here because this to me is really this template, this Hexabot is the collective brainchild of the community of traders that we have at Option Alpha. And that's not sugarcoating it. Like there are so many things that we pulled out of other templates and other ideas that we saw in the community that it most important thing that you have to get across if you're listening to this right now is that this is not Kirk's template. This is not Ryan's template. This isn't even Kirk and Ryan and Randy and other people who worked on this. This is not our template. This is a template that basically was born of the community. We took a lot of bits and pieces from a lot of different templates that are out there, sprinkled in our own kind of stuff that we wanted in there as well, and tried to weave it together into this hopefully ultra powerful and great example of automated trading. Yeah. One thing with that is that like we went through so many different bots and templates and monitors and scanners from like popular templates shared throughout the community and tried to like, wow, what were they thinking whenever they did this? Like I'd never even thought about taking that approach or like, okay, how do we recreate this for what we're trying to accomplish here? And it was really, really fun to try to dissect other templates, to try to pull bits and pieces that would help improve this one as we were building it. And, and, you know, to even add on to that even more is like, we did this whole, like, I guess you could say like round of research, if you want to call it that, not only dissecting templates and kind of trying to understand like, okay, what were they trying to accomplish? Why were they trying to accomplish it? But then also going through and reading the descriptions of templates, reading the comments and questions that other people had asked. I mean, so we spent a considerable amount of our time just on the investigation, research, and trying to uncover, like, what are we missing? Like, we're hopefully humble enough and hopefully always stay humble enough to know, like, we're not going to have a perfect end-all be-all of, of trading. But so, like, what are we missing? What is somebody else doing that we're not doing or that we can incorporate or a different version of it? And I think that is so powerful that you can do now. And I, I hope that people do this regardless, whether they do automated trading or not. Like, that process is such an educational growth focused process. It's almost like you have to do it. And I look forward to doing it again for another one, you know, for another one that we would have. One of the things that you see from a lot of the popular templates in the community is how many comments have been posted on them. And so like how many, you know, rabbit holes people go down and how many small changes that lead to new updates and new versions. And that's even been the case already with this template. So let's get into it. Yeah. So the second thing is to it took a really long time. So I don't want to I don't want to overstate or understate this like this was our focus. Our focus was not on throwing together a bot template that we could just throw out into the community. I mean, we deliberately went through a planning and research phase, an ideation phase, then we did some testing and research around that even more. Then we started building and then we even after we built the first versions, we did a lot of testing and like testing our ideas and our logic. Then we started forward testing with market data and real trading. I mean, there was a lot that went into this. So I just want to say for this one, like this is why 
I want to be a trader and an investor. Like, and just to not go down too far of a tangent here, but like, this is why I think automated trading is so important for traders because what it has allowed us to do, and I'm just speaking for myself personally here, is to focus on the plan, like to focus on your strategy and your plan and to like really test yourself and grow as a trader. Like, do I want to do this? Would I want a bot doing this or doing that? Or how do I want to think about allocation? And if you've ever listened to any podcasts that you've heard here at Option Alpha, you've probably heard me say a million times that I feel like most traders and even people who've been around for a long time kind of go into the market every week like a cowboy gunslinger. You know, just kind of running into the into the saloon, shooting at anything they can see, any chart that really kind of looks or stands out, like anything that catches their attention, it's kind of like shoot and kill. And I feel like the better investors and traders over time, hopefully are the ones that sit down and have a trading plan. So for us, this Hexabot is really the epitome of sitting down, going through a research ideation phase, a process phase to build out a plan. Yeah, I mean, and so just kind of explain a little bit of that process. One of the things that was different from your approach versus my approach is you came at it wanting to have color-coded spreadsheets and charts and diagrams and like you wrote things out on paper and I'm like, I want to start to build a scanner and build a monitor and like change as we go. And it was it was kind of interesting to blend those two approaches because I wanted to like scripted out as I went and you wanted to have like the concept laid out and molding those two approaches together, I think was beneficial. And that's like, you know, not to just like harp on the community approach, but also just kind of the buddy approach, you know, bouncing ideas off of each other. And after we had done that for a little while, we essentially had on a piece of paper scripted out, like this is kind of the direction that we would want to go given different market conditions. And we just started to pull up charts and go through like, okay, this is where the ticker is relative to the indicators we were wanting to use. Would Is this the type of position that the bot would have entered? Yes. Okay. We're going the right direction. No. What are we missing? And so we had some pen and paper. We had some just automation mix and matching. We had passing versions of templates back and forth. We had spreadsheets and just want to give a little background as to like what that thought process actually looked like in practice. Yeah. And I think it's important. And you know, the good thing is, is, and I would encourage everyone to like go in the community right now. And like, if you're looking to build a template, looking to build a strategy, like raise your hand in the community, say who wants to partner up, you know, and then you guys follow each other. You can send private messages back and forth, send templates back and forth, but like don't discount how important it is to have someone to bounce ideas off of and and build together. And, and I think you learn a lot through that. That being said, number three that we you know had on kind of the background, you know, Genesis origin was that we're going to continue to refine this template, of course, look for opportunities to improve it. Even from the first day that we posted it, we've seen a lot of different ideas. We've updated the version a couple of times, you know, kind of correcting things and making things more clear, removing things in some cases. It's been an amazing process. And so just want to tell you, like, if you're listening to this right now, that you will probably see a different version of this in the future. And I hope we don't have too many changes. I hope it's not something that we, because I don't think you should have something that continues to change week by week, but incremental improvements or, you know, clarifications, simplifying things, I think is definitely part of the process and and should be expected moving forward. So we'll continue to iterate on this 
as we go. The last thing I want to say before we kind of get into foundational elements or things that we wanted to include is that, of course, we recommend that you do your own homework on what you're going to trade, research your own strategies that you ultimately choose for your account. This template and no template that's shared in the community is ever a magic pill or magic trading strategy. It is not a unicorn. We didn't name it the unicorn template. Obviously, there's clearly risks involved in trading this way. And this was built for a specific type of strategy that we wanted to run. So you're free, as always, to create a copy of this template inside the community, then modify it and edit this version to fit your own needs. And you've seen this already with people adding comments and adding questions and modifying the template to kind of fit their own trading style and their own personal risk tolerance. But I can't stress that enough. Like this is not the end all be all. It's not the one bullet solution, obviously, to all of your trading problems. It's just a really cool strategy that we wanted to trade. And and I've wanted to trade for many, many, many years and wanted to build something around it. So it was something that we focused on. Okay, so let's get started with talking about foundational elements that we wanted to run in the Hexabot. And the key with these was that we really sat down and we outlined some core elements that we wanted to be part of the strategy and template. And so, you know, we were looking at different like market environments and what we would want to like incorporate in in the template and how we would want to like approach like the big picture stuff. And so one of the things that we chose to do was to make this a template that actively trades one ticker symbol. And so there's lots of templates in the community that trade lots of ticker symbols. There's templates in the community that trade one ticker symbol, but we chose to set this bot up to trade one ticker and one ticker only because it would let us control things like position sizing. It would let us control things like allocation, and it would let us approach this strategy like holistically thinking about how much we would want to allocate to any given ticker for our entire portfolio. And so it let us like really dial in on position sizing and allocation and the specific entry criteria and parameters for different tickers. You think about the dollar price changes um, from like a ticker that trades less than $100 per share to one that trades at $1,000 per share. And so we wanted to be sure that we dialed in precisely on what we wanted for one ticker at a time. I think this is super important to go through because when you start building bots, this is one of the first things that you do have to decide. You you kind of have to decide as you're running an automated strategy, like, am I going to be running an automated strategy? Really, if you if you like went to the nth degree, like on one ticker or just a number of tickers, like a portfolio of tickers. And not to beat a dead horse here, but it's so important in this case that we stress that the bots are still like all of my hexabots will and are using the same automation and the same monitor. So all of that is the same because bots can use the same automations within different bots. So it's not like we built 10 different scanner automations and 10 different monitor automations, and they're all different because they all have one ticker and they're all different. No, no, we're still using the same strategy. But what we're choosing to do is choosing to make each hexabot, each one hexabot that we have, just one ticker so that we can, like Ryan said, more appropriately control things. And the analogy... I always think about this because I just think about cars and love cars and racing. 
is the idea of like, if you have a lot of drivers who are going to be racing, say like Le Mans, right? You might have some drivers that are tall and some that are small and some that are wider and some that are more narrow. One guy's better on brakes, the other guy's better on straightaways, you know? So you might be driving the same car. Y'all might be driving a, you know, a team of Ferraris or a team of McLarens or whatever, but inside the car, it's a little bit different. You know, the seat's a little bit forward for one person, a little bit back for the other person. Brakes are a little bit harder for another person, a little bit softer for the other person, right? And so you're kind of customizing it as you go, but you're still running the same team of cars, right? And, and I think about this for, for my Hexabots is like, at its core, they're still running roughly the same strategy, just with little fine tuning tweaks and adjustments that are specific to each ticker. And I think that this is also kind of goes into like a more generic bot building approach. Some people just prefer to create bots that have one ticker at a time that's traded and then others want to deploy across multiple tickers in the same bot and you know loop through symbols. And so it, it's also just a matter of personal preference. And one of my personal preferences, I typically set up bots that have one ticker in them, but it's not how I do it exclusively, but this is the approach that worked best for us on this particular template. Yeah. And you know, one thing that I worried about when we were thinking about, do we make this a multi-ticker bot? Can it run a portfolio of positions? The thing that I worried about most was that if I wanted to then swap out tickers in the future, I know I could easily swap them because I can just remove them from my list of tickers, right? That's easy. But I didn't know, and I and I was concerned that the second order effects of doing that might then allow the bot, basically give the bot room to mess up very specific position sizing that I wanted to follow. Now, that's not to say that the bot would make decisions it's not going to make or make different decisions. It's just that in our case, my case in particular, because I'll keep talking about like the way that I trade and the way I want to trade, I wanted to make sure that I knew for sure that every single thing that I was doing was around a 5% allocation. And I didn't really deviate from that as things grew or you know go down. So I really wanted to make sure that the tickers I was choosing because of bid-ask spreads and stuff like that was very specific to each individual ticker so I can control position sizing. So I didn't have to worry about second order effects of like, well, if I take one ticker out, you know, how does that change the number of positions that I have? And how does the number of positions that I have change my total allocation? And I would have to add more decisions. It, it would just be more convoluted and confusing to go multi-ticker in this case. And it was easier to go single ticker, I guess is really what it comes down to. For sure. And I think that it's good to also just kind of give an example of like how this might look in, in practice and context for like an overall broad portfolio allocation. And so one idea, one setup, one allocation is to have 10 hexabots across like a set of diversified ETFs. And each hexabot could have a max allocation of 5% of your total portfolio size. And so that keeps your maximum exposure to each ticker below 5%. Which is good. Now that's really key because the way that I like to trade, and I'll just like quickly jump in here, Ryan, is like, I don't want individual ticker exposure to be dramatically over 5%. If it's well under 5%, I'm much happier than if it's over 5%. Because if it's over 5%, it starts to get towards 10, 15. Some people do 20, 40, 50. Like that's just too much risk for me. For you, could be different, but it allows you to keep that ticker size super, super small. 
Yeah. And so having the 5% max allocation, like at the like hexabot bot level, also then lets you set position allocations. So each hexabot is allowed to open up to 10 positions. And so the standard allocation position size that we set up on the template is 10% of the bot's net liquidity. Like this means that the ultimate position size, like relative to your total portfolio, is about half of a percent for each new position that's entered in a ticker. Which is so cool. Just, by the way, so I want to work through the math on this so that everyone can kind of follow it along because we kind of outlined this, but it'd be good to go through like a physical example. And I think we can do that here on the podcast. Again, this is just an example. You can use it. You cannot use it. It's up to you. Like make your own decisions, right? But working your way down like the math structure of how you get to the half a percent position, let's say that you have a $100,000 portfolio, right? You would basically set up each of your hexabots, each individual hexabot to be 5% of that $100,000. So when you're building your bot and you're giving your bot your total capital allocation, like the box that you fill out to actually create the bot, that's where you're giving it. You're giving it the 5% of your total portfolio, your whole global portfolio, however you define that. Could be all accounts, could be just whatever you do for trading, whatever it is for you. But in this example, let's say it's $100,000. So 5% of $100,000 is $5,000. So in that box, when you're creating your Hexbot or your template or whatever, you put $5,000 because that's the maximum exposure for a one ticker inside of your big $100,000 portfolio. And then if you give the Hexabot the room to open up up to 10 positions at a time, not that it would all the time, or you may have much less, like right now, I don't think I've ever gotten to 10 positions. It's been trading for a while. So like, but if it did, it would open up 10 positions at a time. We just take that $5,000 that's allocated to the one Hexabot, divide that by 10, and that basically gives you risk per position of $500. So $500 per position times 10 positions gives the bot at least room to go up to a $5,000 maximum exposure. And that $500, if you take that, the 500 and divide it by the $100,000 portfolio that you had, that's where you get the half a percent per position. So again, just want to go through that. So you guys had that in the back of your mind. And to kind of fill in the final gap, if you've got in this example, a $100,000 portfolio and you're running 10 $5,000 allocation hexabots, then that means that you're about 50% uninvested True. in this yes. strategy that, that leaves the other half of the portfolio free now, to do whatever Now, really quickly, we did also go back and forth on the standard allocation set. We originally had for much of what we were doing trading, we had it set to 10% of the bot's maximum allocation, which would be $5,000 in our example. But we did change that to 10% for the standard allocation, 10% of the bot's net liquidity, which I think is an important distinction. So you want to go through that one? Yeah, this let us vary the position size as the hexabot had outperformance, underperformance, not an out or under the wrong words, just as the as the hexabyte increased in value, like we could have larger positions. If there's a drawdown, it would scale those positions down as we went based off of the bot's net liquidity. Yeah, which I think is a cool way to do it. Now, you don't have to do that. That was just a personal preference that we kind of had and we ultimately came to the decision to do. But I personally like doing that 
for a bot like this that's very specific with position sizing because as the that particular hexabot say goes down which is always what i'm concerned about like the risk first if it goes down in value then the bot is basically self-correcting for risk and readjusting the risk at every new entry so every new entry it's recalculating the new 10% of the bot's new value to recorrect the risk that the bot should be taking. So in theory, as the bot or if the bot ever goes into a considerable or long drawdown, which I'm sure is going to happen in some cases for sure, right? The bot's going to go through a drawdown and not do as well in some scenarios as in other scenarios, then it's going to self-correct and make the position sizing smaller as it goes through that drawdown. That is kind of a, a personal preference, like approach on like some people would not want their position size to grow. Like if the if the hexabot goes from you know your five thousand dollar initial starting value and like you have a you have a good run and you get up to six thousand dollars, it will it will vary that position with that new net liquidity. And so it's somewhat of just a management style preference as you go. And we opted to go with the net liquidity. So that on the way down in a drawdown, we're protecting ourselves with smaller positions. Right. It's funny, like we've been talking for quite some time now, and we've literally only covered, you know, like the max allocation, like how we put in the number there and then the number of positions. But there is so much wrapped up into it, which is so fun for me because I love the the background logic and hopefully thought process, like why we do what we do. And I think as traders, it's so important that you do that as well. Like don't just throw numbers in there because $1,000 seems like the best thing to throw into the box. Like, no, really, like this is your chance as a trader to really think about, to really analyze, like, why do I want to put this number in here? What does it mean? How, you know, could it impact trading in the future? And so those are really key, key things that you should think about. So, all right. So moving on, the second thing that we wanted the template to do was we wanted it to actively trade, which just for really like on my side here, and then Ryan, you can chime in too. I know that when you space out your entries over time versus this idea of like lump sum large entry trading, you just end up getting more smooth and in many cases, potentially better results. So there's a lot of stuff that can be wrapped up into this. You can call it the law of large numbers. You can call it unsystematic risk where you're not just like picking and choosing random dates. But the concept around it is this idea of like proactively trading and being willing to let the bot enter many small positions over time versus one big fat lumped position that gets entered every month, right? Different approach for sure. Yeah, like you can trade the way you want, but that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to intelligently trade a lot of small entries over time. Yeah. And so having up to 10 positions and trading those essentially one one at a time one we we put in an opportunity to spread out your positions and that goes back to the consistent laddering trades idea that we've talked about for a long time and that got us away from that one day pull back enter a bunch of positions all at once and then just let the chips fall where they may instead it's like we're going to we're shooting for a structured laddered approach to entries over over time and I think it'll also be a little bit more evident when we talk about the various ways that we identify trend and overbought and oversold that it's good to have those laddered entries. Yeah. And so one thing before we jump into the six different you know market environments, we could 
broadly categorize the Hexabot in is I didn't want the Hexabot to just blindly enter trades, right? So I think there's this, there's something that people do where if you get potentially to one end of the spectrum where you hear NC traders that have a very consistent uh, regimented trading strategy, where they just enter a brand new position every day, for example, okay? I didn't want the Hexabot to do that. I, I, we wanted the Hexabot to be intelligent about it. It means that it still had to meet some minimum requirements for entering positions. You know, it doesn't mean that like just, okay, close your eyes and just enter a new position every day or every other day. No, no, no. Like you still have to have these bare minimum requirements in order to get the position filled or to get a new position on. So in reality, that has meant that sometimes, and I'm going through this right now with a couple of my Hexabots where it hasn't made a trade for a couple of days because pricing has been terrible and there's been no liquidity in the target positions that I'm in. So although I want to be active, I do want to be active intelligently and not blindly entering new positions just for the sake of being active. For sure. And I think that we tried to approach this very much so as like a, a risk first philosophy, but spacing out these entries and having the entry criteria, um, the way that we chose to do this is also going to let people make this their own by changing some of these inputs and deciding what laddered entries looks like to them, what pre-entry criteria looks like to them. Right. Okay. Now I'm going to let you describe this, this part here, Ryan, because this was really kind of your brainchild for sure. Like I, I would definitely say like, this came from you. This did not come from me. And it was great. It was awesome. It was an amazing like way that we could structure the bot and how we could lay this out. But you basically identified six different, or you don't, you don't identify, but you're allowing the bot to identify six different distinct market environments. Yeah. And so the way that we we went about thinking about this was to just zoom out on some one and two year price charts and to just think about it from a pure technical analysis standpoint, how you would identify some of these trends and market conditions. And so we were setting essentially like a global trend for each ticker and then determining its strength. And so we'll dig a little bit deeper into these later on, but we came up with six broad environments that we categorized. We had strong uptrend, uptrend, weak uptrend, and then strong downtrend, downtrend, and a weak downtrend. And so that um, you know, hexabot name comes from you know, the Greek hexa being six, which we thought was kind of neat because it's blending you know, the Greeks, which are a staple in options trading, and uh, the Greek name and to fold in the different market environments. But thinking about the, the like six-sided approach to market environments lets us identify the trend first and then identify how we would want to trade within each of those trends. And so when we were going through our different like kind of chart studies and talking about market environments, one of the things that we would describe this as is like Kirk would say, like, well, Brian, what do you call this market environment? Like, well, it's kind of a mess. Like it's it isn't a it isn't an uptrend, but then there's like these complicating factors. And so that's kind of how we came up with strong uptrend, uptrend, weak uptrend, and then the opposites on the downtrend. Yeah, that was funny, by the way, like we would get on a lot of calls and I'd be like, all right, Ryan, like 
tell me genius, like, what do you call this? And he's like, I don't know what you call that. That's a mess. There's things all over the place, but we have to, you know, figure out how, do we trade in it? Do we not trade in it? You know, do we help the bot identify moving around it? You know, how do we do it? But I think what is cool about this is that there's a lot of structure for, for many markets. And I think in particular, what I wanted to get out of, out of a bot template that we were starting to build was that we would recognize and accept that momentum persists and is very strong. Like we don't, we didn't want to fight the market, right? We wanted to recognize if something's in a trend and a strong trend, like let's not fight that. Like let's, let's lean into that to some degree. Right. But let's also be intelligent with the heat check portion, which we'll talk about here in a minute and make sure that we're not being stupid. I put it in the description, like less smart, but it's really stupid. Like let's make sure that the bot is intelligent enough that it's not doing stupid things and just riding this, you know, wave that's about to come crashing down. You know, if we can lean into something, but also like cautiously back away just a little bit at some points, I think it was a a good move. So we'll talk about that next year. Right. And so the next, like while we're thinking about the market ebb and flow and trend reversals and momentum persistence and like how we're going to tackle each one of these market environments, we wanted to make it where the bot would like, be somewhat stateful or semi-aware of what actions we were asking it to take and the goals that we had. And the way that we approached that was to fold notifications into a lot of what we did. And that way, when we got to the end of any one of our kind of decision trees within the automation editor, we were essentially notifying ourselves of like, this is the approach and this is why. This was the market environment. This was what happened when we checked technical indicators. So this is what happened when we went back to those like pre-entry criteria checks that um, Kirk was talking about a few minutes ago. We wanted to be able to understand why the the bot was doing what it was doing and with full knowledge that we were the ones who set it up we were the ones that designed all of the all the various decisions but we wanted to essentially remind ourselves anytime that the bot did something why it was doing it yeah and this is actually really important because it's not just the notifications like the notifications are just a way to communicate what the bot's doing right and i think notifications and i see people use notifications all over the place. Sometimes they use them for really simple things. Sometimes they use them, you know, for really complex things. We wanted our notifications to communicate what the bot was doing when it wasn't doing what we, like a normal course of business, if you want to call it that. And so beside the notifications, and you'll see this throughout the template is we used a heavy dose of tagging functionality. And not only because it's really powerful, but because it allows us to set how the bot could lead itself down different paths and different decisions. And I don't think that people really appreciate or use a lot of tagging and maybe we went overboard with tagging, but I love tagging. Like yeah, it was tagging, definitely you that loved the tagging. And like, that was one of your big pushes because you're like tags are awesome. We need to fold that into how we're approaching this, this template build. It's so cool. And because, so what tagging allowed us to do is like tag the bot at every critical junction for what the bot was doing, the market environment, if scanning was disabled or not disabled, 
right? And like why it was, this, and so to go even further, right? I, I see a lot of people, I'm not dovetail on this too much, but I see a lot of people where they will tag a bot and disable it, you know, scanning disabled, something like that, right? And that's fine. And, and you can do that. But to go another step further and like just add a couple decisions that tell the bot and you ultimately as the trader, why scanning is disabled. Like you can do that through tagging. You can make the bot stateful. And what we mean by that is like tell, use the bot tagging and notifications and the decisions that you can have in there to tell a story of like what the bot is doing. So right now I'm just physically looking at my Hexabot for FXI. So this one's set up right now. And right now, as we're recording this, scanning is disabled because the opportunity that I'm looking for is unavailable right now. It's in either the strikes are not available or the timeline's not available, right? It might be in a, a weird point where the next contracts haven't opened up for a couple of days. And the bot is specifically looking for an iron condor. So I know it's looking for an iron condor. So that helps me. I know that it's not available. So it's checked and it's not something that can be traded right now. And then I also tagged it as act, actively monitoring opportunities available. So it's not that all scanning is disabled forever. It's just that it's continuing to check and see if a new opportunity opens up or if I've changed it, but it allows me to be stateful versus another bot that I'm running right now, which is IWM. IWM has tags that say it's scanning is paused for laddering entries because I grabbed a position yesterday. I don't need a position today, right? The way that I've got mine set up. So I'm using tags to tell the bot what it can do. So it's helping itself, but I'm also using those tags to tell me what the bot is doing without me having to dig into it. Right. Like, yeah, I, might, yeah I might come in here really quick and say like, why hasn't IWM, like my IWM Hexabot grabbed the new position? Well, now I know like it could have grabbed a position, but it had one yesterday. So it's pausing its scanning because it needs to ladder positions over time. And it's not that it's so complicated that you can't understand what is happening somewhat intuitively in a relatively short time frame. But what it does mean is if you have 10 of these across 10 different tickers, you can very quickly understand kind of the state of the union for any of the tickers very quickly from the bot dashboard. And what I like to do in my account is I go into my account and I can filter all my bots by any bots that have scanning disabled or any bots that have waiting for laddered entries, right? And so now I can quickly see like, okay, what's the state of all the different positions that I, you know, all the different bots that I'm running? Like some are paused, some are not paused. Some don't have an opportunity available. Some grabbed a position yesterday. It just, it makes it so cool. You do have to think about it a little bit more. It's not something where you can just throw a bunch of things in there, but that's okay. Like, that's what I want you to do. I want people to think more intelligently and, and deeper about how they're building out their automations and bots. Yeah. And so the last thing that we'll kind of talk about here in this section is we made a conscious decision to have one scanner automation and one monitor automation. And that's that even goes against, not against, but it's contrary to like how Kirk and I have both made other bots or how we've seen other bots. And some of my bots have one scanner and some of them have multiple scanners. But for this, we wanted everything to be contained in one scanner automation and one monitor automation so that you could see all of the logic at each step and all of it within one screen. Now, granted, you're going to need to zoom out um, <laughs> where everything is. Zoom out and scroll. Okay. And where you can really see everything all at once. Because if you decide to make changes, 
or decide to add your own like bolt-on automations, we wanted you to be able to see quickly how any changes would affect the bot. And you know, the way to do that, in our opinion, was to get it all in one scanner and get it all in one monitor so that you can adapt this to fit your desires um, in the future and that it's easier to test automations, um, any changes that you might make or edits. And we just, we're pretty set on let's get it down to one scanner and one monitor and in the beginning it were not so we did not start out that way we had multiple scanners we had multiple monitors we had multiple monitors for different time frames in the in the expiration cycle and we got it all down into one scanner and one monitor as a conscious decision to make it where changes were easy to deploy I think the key part there, not to harp on too much, is that that we didn't have it this way before. Like we did have it very fragmented. There was a lot of different automations. And in some strategies, that works. That works really well to have these additional bolt-on, you know, a monitor for your iron condors and a monitor for your put credit spreads and a monitor for your call credit spreads. But it got to the point with this one because there were so many moving parts that it became counterproductive. And so we went the opposite direction. We said, how can we? basically boil this down to two. So it was really important. Okay. You want to talk about bot level inputs? Yeah, I'll, I'll introduce bot level inputs and then let you dig into it because I was I was pretty excited about a lot of the strategic parts of developing this. And I will say that the inputs and the tagging were for sure your, your brainchild um, that you brought into this, but we wanted to make it to where you could control the entire bot with bot level inputs. And we suggest that you not delete or break these inputs, but to adjust them and to tweak them so that you make it your own. There's a lot of inputs in this. I think there's 29 in the scanner. We created this so that you could easily adjust by kind of ticker type or by your specific conditions for any given ticker, these bot level inputs to really customize and hone in on what you would like to accomplish with any given hexabot. And so Kirk, I'll let you jump in to talk about the inputs and things in the scanner. Yeah. So I think with the with the inputs, it was just like what Ryan said, we want to make it all controllable in one area. So don't break them. If you're going to add to them, you can add to them, but just do it on a you know sparing basis, we really didn't want anything super like hard coded. If you want to call it hard coded, you're not coding anything, but we didn't want anything so fixed and rigid that it couldn't be tweaked or adjusted. So, all right, so let's jump into the the Hexabot scanner. So at this point, we've done just as a recap, and again, this all you know we'll put as much of this as we can in the show notes. Although the write up is is pretty detailed on the on the website anyway, we'll put all this on the show notes and any links and stuff like that in opshopcom slash show 223. Again, that's just the number 223, opshopcom slash show 223. So Hexabot scanner. So this is the scanner automation that does everything to basically get into a position. So just as a reminder, the way that we set up option alpha and the way that we set up bots and automated trading is that we think about trading in two main like two main hemispheres, if you want to call it that. There's everything that you're going to do to find, filter, and enter positions. And then there's everything that you do to manage, monitor, and exit positions. And so if you broke up your trading into the main two categories or food groups, it would be entries and exits, right? Or scanning and monitoring. So that's how we have our automation set up. The Hexabot scanner 
is built to do all the heavy lifting and leg work and grunt work that would get into a new position. And then like we talked about earlier, set all the tags, set the state, disable itself if it needs to, and so on and so on. The first decision inside the scanner automation is to check and see if the scanner is enabled. And this seems like a really no-brainer one, but what it allows us to do at the top of the decision tree is to prevent the bot from going down a path that would enter a new position, like immediately. If there's some reason why we want to disable or pause scanning or whatever the case is, we want that to happen as early in the process as possible. And if it is disabled, which is okay, we can disable scanning for a number of different reasons or let the bot self-disable itself for scanning. Then what we want the bot to do is, and you'll see this on the far right-hand side of the Hexabot scanner when you scroll to the right, down the no path for scanning enabled, you'll see that it starts to re-tag itself down this set of branches. And what's cool about this is that it's asking itself, and we just framed it like this and writing our descriptions and writing our tags, but the bot's basically asking itself, like, why was I disabled? Was I disabled because I don't have enough capital? Okay, well, when can I check for new capital? Or was I disabled because what I was trying to go after, I had enough capital, but the position I was trying to get into wasn't available. Okay, well, when can I check and see if the position is available again? And so you'll notice that this branch of logic really is geared around the bot recalibrating itself to some degree and allowing the bot to reset itself for when it could check for new positions or reassess capital all by itself, which I think is so cool that we could do this. Yeah. So the the fact that you know it says if is scanning enabled, no, and then there are these tags present, yes or no. And then at some point, like, well, does the bot have enough capital now? Well, if the answer is yes, then re-enable scanning and then like create a notification. And so like we are given the bot an opportunity to get get back in the game via tagging and these these different like checks here at the onset. Yeah. What I think is cool about the tags, and you'll notice them when you go into the template and start looking at them, is that essentially every 15 minutes when the scanners and monitors are running, the bot completely re-tags itself every time. So you'll notice a lot of places that we included an action to remove all tags or remove certain tags. And that's okay. That's And what's cool about using automation is you can do this all the time. Like the bots don't care if tags are being added and ripped off a hundred million times. They're indifferent about it, right? So what I decided to do with tagging here was basically reset the tags every single time that the bot runs, which allows the bot at every interval that it runs to be the most accurate current stateful version that is reflective of market conditions and the bots conditions combined. And so you're free to do that. I encourage you to do that. You don't have to just tag it, tag your bots once and then try to re-remember why they were doing it. Remove all the tags if you want to and re-tag it on every run of the automation. And so the... With all of those tags like in place, then we are able to move on to the next decision. So is scanning is enabled. Yes. Can my bot open a new position today? And that one is customizable because you can say how frequently you want to ladder into a new position. And so like the bot last open a position more than whatever you enter for that input, 
X days ago. So if you want to enter into a new position like every other day, did the bot last open a position more than one day ago? You can set that to however you want to, to figure out for how full you might want your position count to be over a condensed period of time. And so that if you had the ability to open one position every day and you didn't sell, you didn't have any positions that closed, then it's going to take about two weeks to um, fill up your, your 10 positions, assuming that none of them closed. Well, if you would like to spread it out more than that, you just add an extra day in between each new position entry. And so what that is going to allow you to do is to really dial in on how many positions you might want for any given um, expiration cycle or how how fast you want to enter positions and have lots of positions for the same kind of like time frame within the market. And so this is a really neat spot to customize and determine how fast do you want to potentially fill up your portfolio. Yeah, I think the laddering thing was cool because we determined early on that we wanted the bot to be active, but we also wanted a control to allow more spacing if required. You know, so if you're a newer trader and you're not trading a huge portfolio, you could still use the Hexabot and then space out your laddered entries four or five days apart, right? Now, it's not going to be as active as something where positions are spaced a day or two days apart, right? But in one area with one control, one change that you make, you can now space your positions out you know, every week. So now you're entering four positions over the course of a month versus say 10 or 15, right? Another thing here is that you'll notice that if you go down the no path, so if the bot answers no to the question, can my bot open a new position today? Then you'll see down the no path, it resets all the tags like we talked about, and then tags the bot that it's scanning paused for laddered entries because scanning isn't disabled. So at this point, scanning is not disabled. We're not telling the bot, stop, like don't enter new positions. We told the bot, yes, you can enter new positions, but we need to wait a day or two, right? Like you have enough capital, there's enough, the position you want is there or the target position you likely are going after, but we've given you some controls to say, look, you got to space things out just a little bit. Right. And then after you determine if the bot can open a new position today, then we want to do a volatility check. And that that volatility check is very, it's, it's like up to a personal preference also. Like what level of volatility as defined by the VIX is too volatile for you to want to open new positions? And whether that's 30 or 40 or what whatever it is that you want to determine is the your volatility threshold. Is volatility under fill in the blank? The answer is that yes, then we're going to keep on going down down the yes path. I think that's an important one. It's a very easy one to throw in there. We could have easily removed this one and not had it in there. But I think that this global decision around volatility is just a quick sanity check so that if volatility does get crazy, the bot stops entering new positions so that you have time to assess it, right? Then you could move up your VIX filter level to a higher level if you're comfortable with it. And then the bot just would turn itself right back on and keep going. Me personally, I set it around like 40. I think if it gets up above 40 at some point, one, I'm sure I'll be aware of it and know about it. But two, I don't want it to do anything in that environment because I just want to make sure. And I want to be in control at that point of saying, okay, yes, keep going or no, something structurally has changed. 
that's so dramatic that we need to alter our bid ask spreads or alter our liquidity requirements or our probability of success requirements. It basically is a quick little pit stop to make sure you've got everything dialed in the way that you want. Yes. And like that's, I think that it's important to remember that like this is just not a set it and forget it um, kind of thing. This is an opportunity to continue to use automation to monitor market conditions and to monitor the state of your portfolio and the the state of your bots so that you're able to focus on the strategic decisions. Right. Okay. So now that we've got through all that like background stuff, <laughs> bots are going to go through this in half a second or less, right? But now that we got through all that, now I guess you could say this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the bot starts really making important decisions, starts determining market environments. And this is where you start to see the different major branches start to be created for those environments that you talked about before. So Ryan, I'll let you dive into this because this is definitely your playground here. All right. So we we start to get into like simple moving average checks. And so like pretty fundamental trend following types of approaches. So the first decision checks if the underlying ticker is above the long-term simple moving average. And so for our case here, we determined that the long-term simple moving average is the 200-day. That's an input. You can make it whatever you want to. You can tailor this however you like. This lets us know like is broadly is the ticker in an uptrend or a downtrend. And it doesn't determine yet the strength of the trend. It's just, are we are we above the 200-day or are we below the 200-day? It lets us then create like the major branches to determine what new option position might be entered. So if we're in an uptrend, we might want to tilt towards bullish strategies, generally speaking. Or if we're in a downtrend, we might want to tilt towards more bearish ones. But that's just the first decision that we're going to make in down this like kind of line of thinking. And so after we get through the long-term moving average, we look at the short-term moving average. And so is the ticker above or below the short-term uh, moving average? And so for this, the example that we, we used in the bot is a 50-day. And so is the 50 is the ticker above the 50-day simple moving average? So let's say that the ticker is above the 200-day. It's above the 50-day. And so we're just moving down sequentially a path towards trend identification. Like, are we in a strong uptrend, an uptrend, or a weak uptrend? And so we're above the 200-day. We're above the 50-day. And then we have another check there before we get to the heat check. And the next check after the long-term, the short-term simple moving averages, we look to see is the short-term simple moving average above the long-term simple moving average. So if you kind of zoom out and think about this from a chart standpoint, our ticker symbol is above the 50-day, it's above the 200-day, and the 50-day is a simple moving average is above the 200-day simple moving average. So essentially, we've got long-term trend, like short-term or intermediate term trend. And then we have like the simple moving average crossover style trend check of like the short-term simple moving average is above the long-term simple moving average. And so if the answer to all of those is yes, we are just flowing towards strong uptrend. 
And you can think about this. The mirror of this is, are we below the, the long-term moving average? And that, if that's a yes, we keep going down another branch. Are we below the simple moving average that continues down another branch? And is the short-term simple moving average below the long-term simple moving average? So everything that we're going to talk about from a trend standpoint you know, we have the uptrend and then we have like even the mirrored off to the right-hand side on the scanner, the downtrend example. So one thing I wanted to just like pause here and just go through is I think when you see the hexabot, and I know some people do, when they see the hexabot, they're like, oh my God, it's so complicated, right? And it's, it's not, it's really not like at its core foundational element is just identifying what market the ticker that you're looking at is in. And our use of trend indicators like a 200-day moving average or a 50-day moving average, of course, you can modify and edit these and you know swap the 200 for the 100 and the 50 for the 20 or whatever you want to do. But the idea here is that we're using really long-term, really global identifications of where the ticker is in its historical trend. And when these signals all converge, meaning that they all are showing that the ticker is super strong up and to the right. Okay, well, we want to be aware of that environment and then appropriately try to trade that environment with a little bit of a heat check, which we'll talk about here in a second. Just like if the market is in a really, really strong downtrend, we want to be aware of that. Like We want to know when everything is pointing lower and we want to be appropriately positioned for that type of environment. I think where what's cool about the way that we set it up and you can evaluate this on the, the write-up in the template that we posted in the community, is that in between these like ones that are really easy to identify where everything is in agreement, like tickers above long-term moving average, above the short-term, the short-term is above the long-term, that's easy. But where it gets messy and where we spent a lot of time was like, what happens in between? Like, What really helps us identify, is it a strong uptrend or just kind of an, an easy, like normal uptrend? Or are we in a weak uptrend where we're kind of are not really in a position where we want to make a lot of judgment calls and maybe we trade more neutral? And the way that we we did that part of it is to look at where those two moving averages are in relation to each other. And if you go back and look at a lot of price charts, you know, the ticker price could be above that short-term and long-term simple moving average. But it could have been coming out of like a messy part in the in the chart where we've had a lot of ups and downs and the, the short term simple moving average is below the long term simple moving average. And so what we were thinking at that point is like we're kind of getting some mixed signals. Like the price relative to the simple moving averages is telling us one story, but the two simple moving averages compared to each other or telling us a different story. And so that's how we got to like the weak uptrend decision to where like, okay, we're, we're getting some conflicting information. We're still generally in an uptrend, but it's a little bit messy. And so given that backdrop, we might want to take a different stance. I think that whenever we move from the just trend identification, we then move towards the heat check. And the heat check gives us an opportunity to determine, are we making a good decision in the context of the recent price action? That one's a good one because what, what I wanted in here too, so I'm definitely guilty of trying earlier 
to take it too far, like too many things. And I think Ryan did a good job in our like buddy system here of building out this template of kind of peeling me back a little bit and asking questions like, are we really getting a lot of value by adding more indicators? So the goal that I was after was we have all of these things that are evaluating 200-day moving average, 50-day moving average, right? The 50 versus the 200. Those are all longer-term indicators, which we want to respect and we want to trade and maybe in some cases lean into those market environments. But I didn't want to discount the fact that we've seen and we do see markets get short-term overbought and oversold. And I talked about this in the podcast where I I went through kind of the things I really learned in the year or so of not trading as we went through beta and all that stuff and got everything up to everyone live trading at you know around the same time. I just saw so many markets. And even now, like you see so many markets that have these extremes short term. And I just wanted us to build a bot template that was at least cognizant of like being intelligent about trading those. Not that we could always pick because we're not going to pick tops and bottoms of short-term moves but just not make a stupid decision and enter a blatantly stupid trade when we should do something a little bit different. And so what we wanted to do here was to to get some sort of, Ryan called it from the beginning, a heat check, which I love. I stupidly in the beginning thought that we should add lots of ticker, lots of indicators. So at one point, I think in my Excel spreadsheet, I sent you, Ryan, it was like this massive convoluted like decision tree of color-coded stuff that included RSI, CCI, stochastics, and I think Bollinger Bands or something, but it's just a lot. It just included way, way, way too much, way more than we needed to include. And so what we basically came back down to and we cut things out was, okay, do we get a good enough signal just using one indicator? And we settled on RSI because it was an easy one to understand. It gives good signals. We've got research on it. So we felt like it was one that we could use moving forward. And even though we felt like it was one that we could use moving forward, we also knew that there were different technical indicators that were other people's favorites. And so we made this an input also to where you can easily swap out RSI for some other indicator and the overbought and oversold conditions based off of that indicator. Like you can, you can make this your own. When we were, when we were doing our building, we were really thinking about, okay, initially we had more moving averages. Initially we had more indicators and what we talked back and forth about is, are we actually getting a different signal by having more indicators? And the answer generally gravitated towards no. Like, okay, when this is this indicator saying one thing, this other indicator is kind of right there alongside it. And so adding that additional indicator wasn't really giving us any new information. Which to me was so fun because, and this is an important part, part is like we built a hypothesis around this and then we spent, I mean, hours. I I know one day, I think it was like all day we looked at chart. We didn't do anything else except for like look at charts and like, just kind of spitball this back and forth, but then you test it, you know, you can back test portions of it. You can just eyeball portions of it. If you wanted to, you can spot check portions of it. You have to do something to kind of see if your hypothesis is mostly true, right? It's never going to, there's no perfect indicator. There's no perfect signal, but is it doing what you would expect it to do? And this is where we, like Ryan said, learned that in many cases, we got a lot of technical indicators that were just confirming one another 
at the extremes that we would probably be trading at. It made me thankful that we were creating this because Kirk would pull up a price chart and be like, well, what are we going to do right here? And like have his mouse hovering over a, a certain spot on the price chart. And like we'd go through the decision tree more or less in our minds. Like, are we above this? Are we above this? Is this above this or below this? And so I'm glad that a bot can do it faster than I can blink and <laughs> it can do it on a host of tickers as opposed to uh, you know, us having this discussion back and forth about like, well, what position would this take now? But we went through all that while we were trying to, to study and develop this. So the idea around the heat check, and just to kind of bring it back around so we can get through to an example, because I think this is important, is that the idea around the heat check, again, is just to, when needed, and I think that's the key point, like when needed, just to adapt the strategy and shift it. And in some cases, that might mean because you'll see it like where we start to go from a balanced iron condor to a skewed iron condor, right? So that's a very small step. We're we're taking something that might be more balanced and maybe if you choose, like shifting it to something a little bit more skewed in you know a direction based on the technicals. In other cases, it might mean temporarily trading a different strategy, which by the way, I personally love. So I just have to say for this particular component of the hexabot is something that to me gets at the heart of entering lots of trades and generally trying to have trades neutral. One of the hardest things for me in moving towards automated trading and doing something like the Hexabot was that I used to trade so much around having a neutral portfolio that was always neutral, 100%, all the time working towards neutral, right? If it was never exactly neutral, it was always that we were working towards neutral. And I feel like with the heat checks that we've added to the Hexabot, it allows the bot to enter, say, two bullish positions. And then if things get a little bit overbought, enter two more bearish positions before it goes back to bullish. So you have this beautiful dance of entering positions frequently, which is, again, getting to some of our core fundamental elements. But you also have this ability to swap between and flip between bullish and bearish or neutral and skewed, skewed and iron condors. Like It's really a, a cool thing that we can do with the heat check. So our heat check was we used RSI and we used 70 and 30 as our over overbought and oversold thresholds. And so if we were going all the way down our scanner automation editor and we found like we're in a we're in a strong uptrend because we're above the long-term simple moving average we're above the short term the short term is above the long-term simple moving average like everything's lining up and this visually by the way is all the way to the left of the scanner so if you want to follow along as you're listening to this this is the furthest most left set of decisions and we do one final check here before we get into our like pre-position entry checks. And that final check is to make sure that our technicals are not overbought. And so we look at RSI and we see is RSI above our high RSI signal. And so the, the reason I've just stumbled over that is I'm looking at the bot level inputs and it's because we made all this very customizable. And so you can plug in your technical indicator of choice and what your overbought signal would be. But for us in this like default setting, it was, is RSI above 70? And if the answer to that is no, then, okay, we're in a strong uptrend. Our technicals are not overbought. 
we are ready to look at entering a new position. If the technicals are overbought, we would have the opportunity to enter a different type of position. And so it just gives us that flexibility, that final heat check before we enter a new position to see, okay, is the not only is the trend in place, but is is the momentum, are we essentially overextended? And that gives us that final layer of, of market information before we enter a new position. Okay, so I know this is really good. So what I want to do though, is I want to just take one second, and just slow it down just a little bit, because I think when we go through like the actual example here with the objective and the outcome of the branch that we're down or the trading opportunity that we're looking for, it makes a lot more sense why we would do a heat check. So everything you just described, Brian, was super strong uptrend, everything up and to the right, right? Which we would want to respect that. And if we get to this branch that we're at in here that we're talking about, which is all the way to the left of the scanner automation, when you're looking at this and following along, our ultimate goal in a strong uptrend is to enter a short put spread. That's the In a strong uptrend, that's the position that we would most likely want to be in, right? That's how we set up our hexabot. So if we're in a strong uptrend, we don't want to fight the trend. We want to trade with the trend. So our goal is to enter a short put spread. But here's the thing. If we see technicals that are overbought, where we get that short-term huge run-up in RSI, we wanted the bot to have that heat check so that if we are in a strong uptrend, but we see we've seen a massive move in the stock and RSI is way, way, way north of 70, then we want the opportunity to actually, even for a day or two, if, if it lasts that long, trade a short call spread. And so this is where the heat check, I think, really is so fun and comes into play because it gives us an opportunity to modify at the last moment what we do in favor of something a little bit more intelligent. And you could think of visually, if you're listening to this podcast, think of a stock that is starting to go parabolic and you don't know when it's going to end, but now you're starting to get all those signals where on the outside, it looks like it's up and to the right, but all the technical signals are saying, hey, look, short term, this thing has gone too far too fast, right? The technicals are super overbought on a shorter term basis. You probably are going to end up running into something, right? Like picking up pennies in front of a steamroller is the old, old analogy. If you continue to trade bullish, because at some point it's going to turn. And so what the heat check does in this case is it gives us that opportunity to just adjust and modify the strategy where the last two weeks, if technicals weren't overbought, we're just trading a bunch of put spreads, right? We're selling a put spread, waiting for our laddered entry. The technicals aren't overbought yet, but we're still in a strong uptrend. Great. Sell another put spread. Technicals aren't overbought, still in an uptrend. Great. Sell another put spread. Wait, the next day, now technicals are overbought and we're in an uptrend, sell a call spread. Start to balance things out a little bit by doing the opposing trade. And so what you'll notice throughout the hexabot, throughout the hexabot is that this heat check for RSI or whatever you choose to put in there gives you that ability to make these like little course corrections when things get too aggressive in one direction or another. And they're not always checking for overbought. Sometimes depending on the market, like if the market's in a strong downtrend, it's checking to see if technicals are oversold, right? So it's making that last minute course correction as we go based on you know a shorter term indicator, just to kind of smooth out some of the edges that you have in trading. 
And so you could make, you can adjust the time frame, like to look back on your, on your technical indicator. Like we made that one of the inputs also to where it really is adaptable to multiple customization opportunities. The other part of the heat check that lets us do is just to make, bring in an opportunity to have a little skew in our positioning uh, to slightly alter the, the type of position that we would that we would trade or the deltas that we're targeting or the position size. It's that final layer that provides a lot more nuance than just the simple core trend following approach. And so the heat check is kind of the, the coolest part to me of our entry mechanism here. Right. And I think one one thing that I, I didn't say like out in the open, but I want to make sure we get it out there, especially on this podcast that we're recording is it's not that we're in all cases flipping from bullish to bearish, right? So it's not that in all environments, if we get an overbought or oversold reading, we're completely changing the strategy. Sometimes we go from a short put spread to an iron condor or an iron condor to a short put spread or a short call spread to an iron condor and vice versa. Or like Ryan said, we give you the choice through some switches in there too, to choose if you even want to go from a balanced iron condor to one with a little bit of skew, you know, in the direction that we're getting that signal. So there is a lot of play in here that we're not just completely going flippy floppy and saying we were bullish, now we're bearish. But again, remember, if you're entering new positions all the time and you have multiple entries, it's okay to get into three bullish positions and then a bearish position and then two more bullish positions if the indicators and signals are telling you something different. Our main goal, and I I don't know if I clearly articulated this at the beginning of talking about the scanner, but our main goal with the scanner is just to enter the next best position, right? So there's this idea and this philosophy around like, once the positions are entered, right? Like the probabilities, you basically are entering the position for the environment that you are given. And so there's only so much you can do with positions that are entered. You manage those, but it's always that next position. So if the next best position is a short call spread and you've entered nine short put spreads, then that's great because the next best signal for you for today moving forward is that short call spread. That doesn't mean the short put spreads are going to be losers or not work out. It's just that the next best signal is what the bot is focusing on entering for positions. So once you get through the actual heat check, which then really divides out the last section of your scanner. So if you think about the bot, the Hexabot is having those six global market environments that it could be trading in, strong uptrend, uptrend, et cetera. Then you get into the heat check. The heat check just further divides the bot essentially into the last two branches down any particular environment. So you really have about 12 different market environments that the bot ultimately could enter positions in. 12, I guess you could say, very specific market environments that it would enter positions in. From here, it really becomes a very mechanical and repeatable process. And you'll notice at the end of all the branches that the Hexabot scanner has is that it has a set of decisions around passing pre-entry checks, passing opportunity filters, and then deciding if we need to disable scanning due to capital or otherwise. So all of those are essentially the same sets of decisions, just with different inputs connected. Because 
in each of those different branches, it might be checking for different opportunities. So the one I want to focus on first here is the entry pre-check. And our thought process around adding this set of decisions, because if you open it up, you'll see it's a set of group decisions, is just doing the early qualification before entering a position. So if we're going to go under the assumption, for example, and I'll just use this for the rest of the podcast, that we want to enter a short put spread because the market's a strong uptrend and we don't have technicals that are overbought. So we want to enter a short put spread. What are the early things that we could do that we could check such that if the answer to that those questions were no, we would want to disable scanning and stop checking, right? Like what are the things that you would want to check before you go and check other things that would tell you if you have the ability to enter a position or if a position is even available. And so we put inside of this entry pre-check basically two main decisions. The first decision checks to see if the target position we're going to go after is even available. This is a really fun decision that we added way back. I mean, this was a long time ago we added this one because we saw people in early beta trying to get into positions that didn't have the strikes they were looking for or didn't have the expiration they were targeting. So we basically added this decision that allows the bot to pre-analyze if something is even available. So for example, if you're targeting a short put spread that's exactly 30 days from expiration, well, the bot would check and see, is there an option contract that's exactly 30 days from expiration? And if there is, it would continue down the yes path. And if not, it would continue down the no path and say that thing is not available right now. Maybe it's available tomorrow, might be three days, whatever. But it allows you to have the bot check and see if the position you're targeting is even available. Does it have the strikes you want? Is it the timeline that you're looking for? Is it even something you could consider? The second thing that we're having the bot do here is check the capital that it has. And this is really important because we want the bot to evaluate not only is the position out there and available to trade, but does the bot have enough capital to open the new position? whether it's the standard allocation or a slightly aggressive allocation in some cases, but you're just having the bot check and see, does it have enough capital to even try? Because why send orders to your broker if you don't have enough capital or if it's over your threshold or if it requires more capital than your bot has at the moment? So we let the bot do a last check here in this pre-entry check to make sure that it has enough capital to trade. Now, if either of these two decisions fail, because we've set up the bot so that both have to pass, which makes sense, right? In order to go to the next stage, the position has to be available and the bot has to have capital. If one of those decisions fails, then the bot immediately disables scanning because what we're going after, we can't get. It's either not available or we don't have capital. And the bot makes a decision to decide if it has failed due to capital, which allows us then on the opposite side, if it hasn't failed due to capital, then we know it's because the position's not available. And this is where you can start to see the bot tagging itself based on state and sending itself notifications or sending you as the trader notifications like, hey, I've got low capital to trade this position. So either add more capital or the bot just waits until maybe a position rolls off. And then when the bot has more capital, it can retag itself and start scanning again. If the opportunity is not available, then it will check every morning or it will check after you've made edits and updates. Maybe you said, okay, bot, I'm okay if the position is not exactly 30 days, but if it's 
between 25 and 35 days. Great. You make that change, the bot rechecks and starts evaluating that range now that you have edited and updated in your bot settings. So this is, again, where you can do a little bit of legwork or let your bot do a little bit of legwork before you get to the next stage of what I would call really evaluating that potential opportunity. And so the part of this is just the desire to run clean bots is kind of how I like to look at it, like trying to reduce the number of like warnings or errors that might happen because I don't want to try to ask the bot to do anything that doesn't exist or that I'm not able to follow through on from a capital standpoint. And so it is just making sure that we're we're running a running a clean clean slate here that the that the opportunities are available and that we have capital available to continue down the yes path and and for for me too it's not just running a clean bot but it's also like splicing out and basically partitioning out what is causing the bot not to get into a position right and allowing the bot to go down different branches that would allow it to tag itself and send me a notification that's very specific to the to the current environment that it's going in. But let's assume now, for the sake of argument, that the bot passes those entry pre-checks, right? It's got capital, the position's available. Now what? Now this is the fun one because I love these. And if you're not using these, you're literally missing an opportunity to do the easiest, most layup type of automated trading possible, which is to have the bot do opportunity filtering for you. So we've done lots of workshops on this, lots of podcasts on this, but again, we don't see a lot of people using all of the power that is in here in filtering opportunities. Because now that you have an automated tool that can assess and evaluate positions for you or potential trading positions, why not introduce your minimum requirements across the board? Now, again, these are all inputs so you can modify and edit them for each individual ticker that you're trading or different outcomes that you're looking for. But inside of our opportunity filters that we included in the Hexabot is four very specific decisions. They're all decisions that are geared around trying to create a holistic picture of the potential trade that we're going to get into. Now, I say potential trade because the bot has to pass these opportunity filters meaning that all of these opportunity filters have to check out in order for us to send the trade to our broker, which is so key, right? We're not just, again, blindly trading here and saying, okay, we're in an uptrend, sell a short put spread. Nope. We're making sure that minimum requirements are met in order for us to feel comfortable enough to let the bot send orders to our broker and request that the broker submit orders to the market. In our thought process around building out these opportunity filters, we thought that there are essentially four main opportunity filters that you would want to do that would, again, give you a really good holistic picture of the potential position you're about to trade. These are all inputs. They're all customizable. So do whatever you want with them. The first one is a maximum bid-ask spread. So we wanted the bot to check the bid-ask spread of the potential position we were trading and make sure that the bid-ask spread was currently below that maximum threshold. So if you tell the bot the maximum bid-ask spread for new positions is 50 cents, if the spread you're looking at is 55 cents, then it's going to fail that check and it's just going to recheck again at the next interval, which is exactly what you want 
a bot to do for you. You want the bot to make the non-emotional decision of saying 55 cents or 52 cents is above what I said my maximum spread threshold was going to be a 50 cents or whatever it is for you. Could be 10 cents, two cents, whatever you want to set. But that's the first one that we used in our opportunity filters. And I like using this one because generally, if we were going to target one thing, bid-ask spread would be the easiest thing because it encompasses so much. It probably encompasses a lot of liquidity, probably encompasses a lot of open interest, right? It's probably the best representation of liquidity if we had to pull one number out of here and say, we're only going to check this one thing. Now, we're not. We're going to check more data points and more metrics here, but bid-ask spread is a great one to check inside of your bots and automations. And, and this is one that varies also by from ticker to ticker. And we've done some research on this and have that in the research insights section of the blog. Like some tickers are going to have a, a wider normal bid-ask spread. And then some widely traded um, big broad ETFs are going to have very tight bid-ask spreads. But we want to make sure that we're trading you know, a reasonable bid-ask spread for the, the opportunity that we're going to pursue. And so the second check here is going to be another liquidity check. And that's and that's going to make sure that the open interest is above some threshold. And so we're going to check that the on this particular trade, we're going down the, the short put spread decision branch. We're going to make sure that the short put leg has an open interest that's greater than some threshold. So whether that's 100 or however many contracts you determine, uh, we're going to make sure that there's liquidity there by both looking at the bid-ask spread and now with the second one, looking at some minimum level of open interest. And I think this one's a good one too, because what what you want to do here is you're, you're starting to build a picture of the potential trade that you're getting in. And you're, you're giving the bot a picture of trades that you would be willing to accept. So I think what's important here as a trader is if you're physically looking at an option pricing chain, remember that thing we used to do where we used to actually go in and look at an option pricing chain? If we're physically looking at it, what is the the numbers that tell you, hey, I'm good to go here? You know, and like, where's the numbers where if the numbers are so small, where let's say open interest is 10 or 15 or 20, is that where you start to get a little queasy? Like, am I trading in a pond with nobody else? Like, am I playing in the sandbox all by myself here? Because if I am, that's not good, right? So I don't know where that number is for you. You set it inside of your settings for your bot, but it's got to be some minimum level of liquidity that would tell us that there's other people who are willing to play in this sandbox with us. And we're not the only fish here swimming around. All right. So then the third one is a rate of return threshold. And so we're going to ensure that the rate of return on the opportunity that we are pursuing is greater than some threshold so that the rate of return is greater than 15% or 20% or whatever you fill in for that, that the, that the rate of return is over some minimum level really tells us a lot about how much premium we're capturing relative to the width of the opportunity that we're pursuing. Yeah. And I think the rate of return one is... And this is where when you start trading, if you do start trading some of these hexabots, I've noticed in the weeks and months that we've been trading them that tickers are, I mean, they really are like some tickers just have wider spreads just by default. And so sometimes I've been watching and monitoring and seeing like wider spreads, 
in some, and some other tickers just have lower premium, you know, and it, it could come in ebbs and flows of market liquidity and, you know, what's in favor versus out of favor, what's got volatility, what doesn't have volatility. So this is where you do want to be very specific with that ticker as you go. Like I'm looking at right now, XOP and XOP for me right now is checking almost every box except for rate of return threshold, right? Like it's everything else looks pretty good, but the rate of return, the premium that I'm capturing for the risk that I'm taking is just not high enough right now. Now that could change in 15 minutes. It could change in an hour. It could change tomorrow at two o'clock, right? That's okay. I'll let the bot take care of that for me and check for that all the time. But this is a good one because it does ensure that you're collecting enough money to make it worth it, whatever that is for you. So some people like to do the, you know, one third the width of the strikes. So if you like to do one third the width of the strikes, then you would set your minimum rate of return for a spread to be 33%, where you want to take in 33% of the width of the strikes. That's your rate of return. Some other people might want to set it to something lower, like 10% or 15% or 20 You might even set it for some tickers higher and some tickers lower. What I've done, and again, this is just me personally, is I've definitely played around with the bid-ask spread and the rate of return and the probability of profit as probably the main things that I've played around with between different tickers that I'm trading. Because for me, it's important, and this like maybe dovetails just a little bit and then we'll come back. But to me, it's important to have positions in many of the tickers that I want to trade. So if I set these requirements too high, then I focus only on the the one ticker or two tickers in a given month that meet my really, really, really high, super, maybe almost exaggerated standards. And if if I'd set them too low, then I trade everything under the sun, right? So I think there is this play where you kind of mess around with and you know adjust slowly your bid-ask spreads in some cases or your rate of return or your probability of profit because I want to have positions in multiple tickers. And I feel like the value of doing that from a portfolio level, so the value of having positions in XOP and XLE and, and oh, you know, whatever, in IWM and uh, TLT, the value of a collective portfolio of diversified tickers is greater than me setting the rate of return threshold too high and never entering a position. Does that make sense, Ryan? Yeah. And I, you know, I would for sure, I personally, I lean towards being more stringent with the liquidity checks like bid I spread and open interest than I do the rate of return and probability of profit, because I just want to make sure that the liquidity is there for the opportunities that I'm pursuing. And then my rate of return and probability of profit minimums are probably lower than what other people may consider, but to skew towards, I'd rather get into some of these positions than to filter out all of my possible opportunities. But I've been like that since became interested in investing. If I'm going to screen for a dividend paying stock, like I always start with a very kind of permissive filter and then tighten from there once I start to see what the world looks like. Yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it too. And so the next one that we have here, the last decision for our opportunity filters is a check to make sure that the chance of profit is greater than the limit that you set or the minimum threshold that you set. So again, this is a probability of profit input in here. You set the probability of profit And this ensures that whatever opportunity you're looking at is greater the chance of profit on that opportunity, that particular opportunity 
whatever those strikes are, whatever that contract month is, that it's greater than your minimum threshold that you set. This to me is again, a really good one. You can definitely modify it and kind of change it up if you want to ticker to ticker, but it's a really good one to create a very solid base of high probability trades that you're going to get into. I think the risk here is that people set them aggressively too high and don't account for the fact that they're maybe setting up a short put spread at a 40 delta or a 20 delta or whatever it is. So set it reasonable with the actual trade that you're trying to get into. So if you're selling 30 delta short put spreads, then you probably want to set your probability of profit 70% or somewhere around there, right? But make it reasonable so that you can make a reasonable assumption that your trade that you're getting into is always a high probability trade. Like I said, I've run into a couple of these lately in TLT, and then you know pricing kind of came back in and now pricing is higher. So it makes the probabilities and everything work out. But there was a time where TLT for a couple of days, I don't know, a week or two ago, wasn't entering trades. And it was mainly because the probability of profit was not over my minimum threshold. I had a very specific minimum threshold that I wanted to hit, and it wasn't there. Like the open interest was there, the spreads were good, the rate of return was even pretty good, right? But the probability of profit was not high enough for my comfort level for that type of position. So it failed until all of those things came back in line. And that's okay. Again, that's where you want the bot to make those types of decisions for you in the future. So we can, let's assume that all the opportunity filters pass. We also passed all the pre-check filters. And now we are getting to the open position action where the we've already checked that everything is available, that we have enough capital, that the return and liquidity requirements that we've set in place are there. And so we get to the, the final action where we send an order to the broker to enter the position that we just scrutinized. And so congratulations, we've entered a new position <laughs> in the Hexabot. And that's good. And so here's the other thing I'll say about this, right? With the actual open position actions, when you open those up inside of your scanner, you'll also notice that every single different open position action has already been pre-tagged for you for the exact environment in which that position was opened. Now, I'll tell you, this is where you can go a little bit further. You want to get brownie points for yourself because I think it, it pays dividends later when you're looking at it to do some of this stuff inside of your bots where you're tagging the positions that you're opening. So in our case, we're tagging a position and saying, strong uptrend, neutral technicals, short put spread, or whatever you want it to be. So that later, when you go back through a year from now, two years from now, and you start looking at positions, you're like, oh, this one won, this one lost, this one won, this one lost, or I had a string of losers or string of winners. You can click on those positions and see, because you tagged them at that time, what the environment was that entered those positions. And later when we start releasing the journal software, you'll be able to then analyze positions by tag and start to see like, oh, am I a better trader when there's neutral technicals and strong uptrend? I get better performance out of those positions. Great. Let's adjust and tweak the bots so we're more aggressive in those, you know, those market environments. This is where going a little bit further with tagging and implementation and taking your time is going to pay huge dividends later on. Now we already did this for you. We tagged all those environments. So you're welcome. We did this for you, but I encourage you to do this moving forward in other bot templates that you build as well. 
Yeah, I think that one of the things that we saw when we created this was just how much value there was to seeing what other traders were doing and their templates and trying to capture some of that and fold it into what we created here at the Hexabot. And I think that the sky's the limit on how many different ideas you can come up with through just exploring how other people handled management decisions or how other people handled uh, pre-entry checks. Yeah. So spend your time. I mean, spend a good amount of time going through the scanner. There's a lot in here. Once you get through kind of the background stuff and then you start to branch out into the different environments and do the heat checks, you'll notice it's a lot of the same types of decisions, but again, checking different individual positions. So they might look the same, but underneath the surface with all the inputs connected, they are all very different, checking very specific things. So it's worth your time to go through and really understand how this works. But okay, let's assume now at this point, you've now entered a brand new position. Your Hexabot has a position open, which now will kick on the monitor automation. All right, so that was a lot again. So now on to the Hexabot monitor. Now, if you think that the Hexabot monitor is any smaller than the Hexabot scanner, it really isn't. We definitely... Tried to do a lot inside of one single monitor automation. But again, like we talked about earlier, we want to give you the room that you need inside of your bots to bolt on, add, improve, enhance, or add things to this if you wanted to. And wanted to make sure everything was highly condensed and inside one single monitor automation. Now, look, this thing is a beast to look at. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. When you open it up, you're going to think really hard and clear about or long about why you decided to clone this template. But if you go through this as we're going through it here on the podcast, you'll notice that it goes through again, just like the scanner automation that we have, a very logical set of decisions that then branch out into just essentially a bunch of closing actions for your positions. Our whole idea around the Hexabob monitor automation was really to give you a lot of controls you'll see when you clone the actual template that there are a lot of switches, most of which are set up throughout the bot monitor that we're running because it allows you to control the different types of management actions that you want the Hexabot to take. So the best way that we came up with to give you that control was to do it through the use of switches, switches that you can just very simply turn off or turn on inside of the top of the settings when you clone this template. So Let's start off with that. Maybe we can talk about the first couple monitor decisions that we go through and then just work our way down. Again, I'll let Ryan, I'll let you start here and then we can kind of pick up and bounce back and forth. I think that scanning for positions is something that people, I think that people tend to make similar decisions when given similar like inputs on scanning. But I think that monitoring starts in like how you manage positions introduces a lot more like personal like feel and philosophy and like how close you want to go towards expiration and all that. And that's why I think that the switches really bring in as many of those position management and philosophy kind of decisions that you might want to encounter as you manage positions and monitor those positions. So that's going to be interesting to, to go into. As we start the monitor automation, first thing that happens is we just repeat for each position. And so each position that we have um, in the bot will go through the same set of decision criteria. And we loop through that every time there's a automation interval that runs. And our first 
decision that we encounter is one to to make sure that we're trading positions that the body is prepared to handle. So it ensures that if a new position is entered, that uh, maybe you manually entered a long position, like you're going to get a notification right off the bat with the Hexabot monitor because the the bot is set up, the the monitor set up to monitor positions that are short call spreads, short put spreads, or iron condors. And so for if, for whatever reason, you've entered manually some position that is not one of those three, you're going to receive a notification right off the bat because that that no path sends you towards a nice friendly notification like, hey, you've opened a position type inside the spot that is not set up for um, this monitor automation. So please review and you know, signed it lovingly, your bot. And so we, we right off the bat are making sure that we're monitoring positions that we are set up to monitor. Yeah. And that's fine. And by the way, we all, I, I always write all my notifications, like my bot is a like a living, breathing thing. I just like to think about them that way. So that's how the notifications are written. You can obviously change and modify those. But yeah, that was a, a fail-safe one, you know, that we knew we wanted to add just in case if at any point, you know, we imported a position or manually added a position that you just notify yourself as a trader, like, hey, this bot is not set up to notify, you know, to handle those. That way you're aware. Again, just being aware of the state of what the bot has and what is trading. It won't enter those other positions because it can't, but you would have to do this yourself manually and then the bot would notify it. So the next set of criteria, once we kind of like pass that, you know, quick smell test for like, okay, do we have the right positions in here that we can manage and monitor? Is this one of them? Yes. The next set of criteria that we get into are a couple, and I'll, I'll throw all three of these into this category for right now, which is the accelerated and absolute profit targets. And the whole idea with the three of these combined is that if you get into a position, there's probably something that tells you to get out of the position immediately or faster than normal. So the first one that we threw in there is an absolute profit target. This one is a fun one for me, and I like using this in a lot of templates because there's going to be a point at which you say, look, if I make this much money, this percentage of my premium I've captured, I don't care if it's early, late, midway through the cycle, whatever, like the position's coming off. To use the most extreme example, if you sell an iron condor for $100 and you've captured $99 of that $100, are you really going to let the position hang on, right? There's got to be a point at which you say, look, if I reach this absolute profit target, I'm out no matter what. There's no time involved. There's no nothing. You know, so that's the first one that we introduced there, which is an absolute profit target. If you hit that absolute profit target, boom, you are out of the position immediately. The next ones after that are what we call your accelerated profit targets. Now we have them split out because we thought you might want to do other things besides checking these accelerated profit targets. So if you wanted to do things down different branches, we have a first check. So like your quick accelerated profit target. And then we have a second accelerated profit target. Now, these came from one of our other members in the community. And Randy had a template, actually a bunch of other people who've who've had templates that have done this same concept of if you get a quick profit early in the life cycle of the bot or of the trade that you've placed, you might want to take the position off early. And so what this is doing is this is checking. And if you open up this decision criteria for accelerated profit targets, it's checking to see if the position has been opened 
less than a certain number of days, so say five days, and the return is greater than some accelerated profit input that you set. And of course, we also have to make sure that the accelerated profit target is turned on, the switch is turned on, basically meaning, yes, you want to take accelerated profits when they're presented. So what it's going to do is it's going to go through your positions. And in the first couple of days at the different checks that you set, it's going to check and see if you have very, very quick profits. So for example, the way that I've got mine set up right now is that I have accelerated profits turned on. My first check is at five market days. So inside five market days, because that's the way the bot decisions are written, less than the accelerated profit days that we have in the first check, in the first five market days, if I have a 25% profit, take it immediately, right? Because I'm entering positions sometimes that are 30, 45, 60 days out. So if in the first five days, I capture 25% of my expected premium and profit that I wanted, wanted to capture the whole time. I'm taking it off the table. So that's the way I set it up. In the first five days, if I have a 25% profit, that's my first set of checks, I want the bot to remove the position. My accelerated profit second check, so the second set of days that I would check for, is that if in the first 10 days, I have a 35% profit. Notice that as the position matures a little bit more, I want to capture more premium. So I'm not willing to accept 25% profit in the first 10 days. I'm willing to accept only 35% profit in the first 10 days. And so again, those are all controls that you can put in edits and inputs that you can modify inside of your template that you're running of the Hexabot. But the key here is that you're doing something early in the cycle, in the monitor cycle, to check for these accelerated profits if you turn them on. So we've, we've checked for our absolute profit target. Like, you know, is, is our absolute profit target hit? No. Well, what about our accelerated profit target, our first check? You know, yes or no. What about our accelerated profit target on our second check? Yes or no. So we're giving ourselves lots of opportunities to like fan out of positions, depending on how long we've been in the position and what our, our position return is. And so then we start to move into the position is challenged or it's been open for a while or like just there's still time on the clock. We, we haven't, we haven't hit one of these accelerated targets and the position is still, still working. So you want to take it from there? Yeah. So now that we have the position still working, we are going to check the short strikes being challenged as an exit trigger. Now, again, we used switches in here. So if you don't want to exit when the short strike is challenged, then you can just simply turn off the switch. Or if you don't want to exit, if the long strike is breached, turn off the switch. But these were now the next set of criteria that we wanted the bot to check because it's the most logical. Like once you've checked for accelerated profits and you don't have accelerated profits, well, now you should be checking for things that in this case, you are checking to see if the position is getting challenged to a point at which you would want to close the position. So the first decision we asked the bot to make, and you'll notice when you open up this single decision that it is a big group set of group decisions with lots of and or statements throughout, but it's very logical. We're simply asking the bot to evaluate if any short strike of anything that we have is currently challenged, meaning that if we sold a put spread and we sold our short put at $100, 
We want to check and see if the position's underlying price is now trading below that short put strike. So if the position, the underlying price, the stock that we're trading is now trading at 99.50 or 99.99, anywhere below where our short put spread is, that would trigger that the position is challenged. And only if you have that switch turned on would the bot then exit that position. So if you turned on the short strike challenged exit trigger, as soon as the monitor runs and you have a short strike on any position, an iron condor, a short call spread, a short put spread, any of those positions are challenged where the stock is now trading above or below the short strike, depending on which side you're on, it would immediately start to go through and try to close that position. Now, again, if you don't want this, simply turn off the actual switch and it doesn't do anything. It just goes down the no path and assumes that it was never there, right? I personally turn these off on mine. I don't care if my short strikes are challenged. In fact, in many cases, I know that my short strikes might be challenged, maybe often in the expiration cycle, and I'm okay with that. The next decision then is checking to see if the long strikes are breached. Now, this is about the same concept, but now what we're doing is we're checking the further end of the position, right? Some people might say, look, I don't care if my short strike is challenged, but if my long strike gets challenged or breached, then I'm out. And this is where, again, you have total control to do this. We split these up into two different decisions inside the monitor automation so that you could control one or both of these if you wanted to. You could turn off the short strike challenge and turn on the long strike breach exit, which means that if the stock in our example, so if we sold a $100 strike put and the stock is trading below 100, we may not get out of the position because that short strike is challenged. But if we bought the 95 strike put and now the stock is trading down to 94, now that long strike is breached as well, well, maybe we want to get out of the position. So you turn that trigger on and now immediately it would exit those positions. And circling back to some of these previous decisions, we put in pretty highly customizable closing position pricing on all of these, like on the absolute profit target. Like if we're looking for a 75% absolute profit target that we're wanting to get out, that was that first decision in the in the monitor. Like we made sure that our closed position pricing controls only were willing to close the position at that absolute profit target or on our accelerated profit targets. We gave a lot of, of closing position order controls to be able to like pinpoint this is this is how we want to interact with the bid ask spread, or we kind of glossed over those at first. But there's inputs even on on those closing position actions that we've that we've gone through before we got to the short strike challenge and the long strike breach. Yeah, and I'll circle back to the bid ask spread waterfall because I want to kind of cover that at the end. But just continuing to go down this path of like different ways in which we would exit positions. Again, you're starting to see, hopefully, if you're listening to this, a pattern of like. Just having the bot monitor all the different ways in which you might want to manage the position. I mean, that, that's really all trading is. Like all trading is is getting into a position and then monitoring all the different ways in which you would exit the position, right? This does this, this does that, the stock goes up, it goes down, it goes this far or that far, whatever. Like put all those into a monitor automation. Okay. So after we get past the decisions for evaluating the strikes of the position whether it's the short strikes or the long strikes, we get to another decision, which is 
to use a stop-loss exit or not. Again, a stop-loss exit is a switch inside of the bot. You can turn it on or you can turn it off. I personally have it turned off on all my hex bots, but some people love using a stop-loss and good for you. You use a stop-loss, you turn it on, and then set your stop-loss trigger. If the stop-loss exit is turned on, then it will evaluate whether that position has reached a stop-loss, which is so cool. Again, I know like as we're going through this, it may not seem like a lot, but it's the coolest thing in the world that your bots and automations can do this for you on the fly, every single position one by one. So it's going to look at every position and then evaluate, did I reach a stop-loss for this position? And if I did, and I have my switch turned on to evaluate that, then it would exit those positions that have reached their stop loss trigger. You know, if you if you really start to like kind of zoom out and think about this, we've the bot is just asking a series of questions like, has this happened? No. Okay. Has this happened? No. Did this happen? And like it went from like the absolute best case scenario to like now we're like getting into like stop loss zone and then we're going to get towards the different expiration zones. But like you go through these decisions when you're trading manually, you just have to go through all of them. Like, is this happening or is this happening? And for most of us, if we were trading this manually, we would just put in like, well, we put in a 50% profit target, good till canceled limit order that just sits out there for you know weeks at a time or some period of time versus like, this is asking like dynamic questions throughout the entire process. And so when you think about how many decisions we have streamlined, it's it's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So, okay, so now we get past the stop loss trigger. Now we get into one other type of environment that you might want to exit a position in before we get start moving our way towards expiration, which is what happens further down the right-hand side of the monitor automation. The last thing that we wanted to include here is a short-term trend reversal trigger. Again, just like all the other ones, it has a switch in there. You can choose to turn on the switch and evaluate this or turn it off and the bot just skips right over it and goes to the next set of decisions. But what we wanted here was something to evaluate whether the trend that we were just getting into, the shorter term trend of what the stock was doing or the stock was doing as the position was getting entered into, if that trend has since reversed. Now, I think there's two main components to this. One, we didn't want to get into positions that would be entered in the morning and exit in the afternoon for quick little entries, right? So we wanted, you know, some sort of like time limit to make sure that we're spacing these out at least a day or so apart, right? Which you'll see this in the decision sets and criteria where we're checking shorter term EMAs, particularly the five day versus the nine day, which just is going to help evaluate us almost like a MACD to some degree, evaluate whether the trend short term is starting to reverse or not. And it's waiting to evaluate those signals basically about a day apart. We're waiting for that crossover to happen after a day. So we're not doing it in the same day that would churn the account and enter and exit and enter and exit positions. And we're doing it respective of the position types that we're in. So for short put spreads, we're evaluating one set of criteria. For short call spreads, we're evaluating another set of criteria and just seeing if those trends reverse. That's the first component. The second component of the trend reversal is that we wanted to also include, and this is just our decision here, also include a minimum rate of return threshold. So we don't think that trend reversing is 
the only thing that would trigger us to exit the position. You could easily find yourself in a scenario where because the stock might be very volatile, that this, the bot gets into a position and then it could get out of a position the next day and then in and then out and then in and then out as the stock is just literally bouncing around around some sort of neutral price level. So we wanted to introduce a minimum trend reversal profit. Like what's the minimum amount of money that you'd be willing to accept such that if the trend short-term did reverse, you'd be okay getting the position off, right? Now in our case, and some of, I will say in our case, because I don't know what Ryan, you do with yours, but in my case for my hexabots that I've built, I basically set that reversal to around, I think it was 15%. I've got it at 10%. So like, you know, if I'm in a short put spread, the the short term EMAs reverse and start to go against that position, but it was initially at a small profit. I'm willing to take that that win, that small win and just know that I've got other positions that I'm I'm going to start to enter based off of new criteria. Right. And that's so that was my thought too, is like if they if it reverses and I've got a small winner, and maybe it only takes off two of my three positions or three of my 10 positions, right? It may only take off a couple, but I wanted it to have some sort of ability to take a couple of the small winners if we start to see things reverse, so that it frees up space for new, hopefully better positioned entries moving forward. Now, if it doesn't, then I'm okay holding it because I entered positions with a high probability of success great pricing, right? Very tight spreads, right? Like it falls back on all the things that we got into for the original scanner automation. So this one's a little bit different. It's definitely not your run-of-the-mill type of decision grouping, but we wanted it to be its own special thing in here that you could check and you could modify these as you go inside of that one single decision. You could change up what you define as trend reversal if you want to. We just wanted something in there that was cognizant of some evaluation of new trends starting to emerge in the security. And then we start to move into our days to expiration timeframe. And I don't know if we really talked about it within the scanner, what the expiration timeframe is like by default here. We have like the 50-day simple moving averages or short-term moving average, the 200 days, the long-term, and just the base case kind of target expirations that we we had in the defaults were 30 to 60 days of expiration. So generally, that's going to get you into positions you know that, let's say, have 45 to 60 days to expiration. So I wanted to just add that context before we got into like the reduced DTE profit targets, because all of this is still like you can for sure customize this to like if you want to trade half of that time frame across the board, just adjust all of your bot level inputs accordingly as you get started. Yeah. And the other key component here too is like with RSI, I think our default setting on RSI was 14 days as the the look back period for RSI, which really to us was, you know, one, it's a pretty standard setting for RSI anyway, but it gave us the idea that like even if we had an overbought or oversold signal, we're not going to get that reversal in the next day or two. You know, it might take two market weeks for that reversal to really play out, right? The position might go against us for five market days and then come back around the next five market day. It might take a little bit of time for that to play out. And some of our recent research has even shown that to be true as well, that it just takes a little bit of time for these to play out. So we wanted to trade positions that were far enough out to give markets time to ebb and flow and move into the right zone and and didn't want to be so pigeonholed into a short duration, short timeline trade. 
So what we get to now inside the monitor automation is we get to the next set of decisions that start to approach expiration. We call these reduced DTE profit targets. Just like we had accelerated profit targets, we had a first check and a second check. We also have reduced DTE profit targets, which DTE stands for days to expiration. We just abbreviated DTE inside of the automation. But basically what you're doing here is you're doing the same thing you did earlier in the automation with your accelerated profit targets. You're just now reducing your main profit targets down as you near expiration. So just like you were willing to accept early profits if they were big enough, now on the backside of the trade, as you start to approach expiration, you're probably likely willing to accept smaller profits because you're running out of time. And maybe you don't want to run the risk of holding the position, hoping for a big profit, and to see the position turn all the way back around. I always tell people when we do workshops and webinars around this, that it's pretty logical that if you were targeting, let's say it's 75% profit, but you're one day from expiration and you've got a 25% profit, do you take the 25% profit? You're one day away, everything expires tomorrow. Then most people are going to be like, yeah, I would take the 25% profit. It wasn't the 75% I was hoping for, but I'm willing to take money off the table because I'm running out of time. Tomorrow, maybe I get nothing or you know, like I don't want to roll the dice and have that happen. That framework is what we built into the monitor. And we did it in two ways with a first check and a second check, just like you can customize the accelerated profit targets. You can customize the nearing DTE first check and the nearing DTE second check. In my case, for my bots, what I have is I have the reduced profit target for the first check at, let me see what I have it here. Oh, the reduced profit target is when I get inside 30 days, 30 calendar days from expiration, I am willing to reduce my general profit target down to 50%. So if I was trying to shoot for absolute profit target of say 75%, where if it ever hits 75%, I take it off immediately. If I'm inside 30 days to expiration, I reduce my profit target to 50%. And then my second nearing DTE threshold is inside 20 days. So if I'm inside 20 days, I'm willing to reduce my profit target down to 25%. Again, this is just the way that I have it personally set up. You can obviously do it different. Ryan, you probably have yours, maybe slightly different, but I'm willing to back off my profit target, not completely down to zero or 5%, but I'm willing to inch it down as we start getting closer and closer to expiration. So those two DTE profit checks that you can put in there give you that control and that ability to do that. And that that like step down in profit target, you know, it just kind of makes sense logically. Like we went from an absolute to the like, okay, now sometimes going off the clock, are you willing to accept a, a different profit target? Then sometimes off the clock, is, are you willing to accept a different profit target? And so I think that as you set those percentages based off of your own preferences, you kind of think about how you would scale those over time. And so we've just given you three options there. And if you want just the exact same profit target across all the different um, expiration timelines right there, just set it to however you want it. Yeah. And so now once we get past that, which we'll just kind of speed up through those two, again, if you hit any of those, and if you choose to use them, then whenever those targets are hit, the bot would start the process of exiting the positions, right? Now we get to kind of the final Alamo, if you, if you want to call it that. Like, 
Now we get to the far right of the Hexabon monitor. So if you're kind of following along with us, the far, far right-hand side, this like last set of decisions is basically your Alamo. It's the point at which you're now nearing expiration. Now, of course, because we did this with everything, we give you the ability to set what you define as nearing expiration, kind of this final DTE threshold. Some people might say, you know what? For me, expiration is defined as seven days from expiration. Other people might say, for me, expiration is one day from expiration, right? Whatever it is for you, you set it as your input. But once you get inside this final expiration threshold, the bot should make different decisions. When you're outside of this threshold, so like let's say it's 10 days, when you're outside of 10 days, if nothing else has triggered a position to be closed, then the bot should just stop that automation running with an empty no path, which is how we have it set up, and then go back in and start monitoring all the positions at the next interval. So if you're trading, say, 60 days out and you're starting to build your positions, for the vast majority of your trading, the only thing you should be doing is taking positions off at profit targets or if you have stop losses, taking positions off. But it really shouldn't be doing any of this expiration week management until you get inside of your expiration week threshold that you define. And once you're running up against the clock, that's when you do want the bot to make extremely different decisions, potentially more aggressive decisions in some cases because you are running out of time and you got to do something with the position. So what you'll notice when we set up the Hexabot monitor is that we first let you define what you define as expiration. What is it to you? At what point do you want the bot to now start making different decisions? In pretty much all of my bots that I run, I define that I want expiration to be inside five market days. So basically, I'm looking at the week of expiration, the five market days leading up to expiration. I want to give my bots, my Hexabots, as much time as possible to let the position work out and to let all the probabilities work out the way that I think they're going to work out. And so I don't want to cut that off too early. Now, do I think that I should be monitoring positions? Or do I think that I should set this threshold lower? No, I don't think it should be lower because for me, the next set of decisions is what allows me to make intelligent decisions for expiration week. And that that expiration time frame, as you said, like it may be like the week of for you and like for other people, it may be 10 market days until expiration. It just it's kind of a personal preference for how long you're willing to hold positions. And I think that that also varies quite a bit based off of the days to expiration at position entry. You know, if you're used to opening positions that are 60 or 70, 75 days to expiration, like holding something within 10 market days may feel like a whole lot closer to expiration than say five market days. And so it's very much so a matter of personal preference. Now, so the next decision that we have the bot make after it gets inside this threshold, let's just call it five days for the sake of this example. So the the position that you're looking at is now inside five market days to expiration. The next decision that we have you make is to enable or disable, because it's a switch, intelligent expiration week management. Now, we just put this together because we thought, and Ryan, you brought this up when we were kind of drafting this and playing this out, some people just want to close positions when they get inside a certain number of days, that they don't care about anything. 
they yeah, like that's that's my my default <laughs> like that you think really? that sounds crazy but like that's that's my default wait so do you have it turned off on all yours I actually don't because of all of our discussions, but like historically my fault has been like, I don't want to hold anything into expiration week, but that's just, that's just. Yeah. And some people do. So some people said it like, okay, if it's two days, like, I don't care what happens, where the position is, just get it off. So if you turn off intelligent expiration week management, basically, as soon as the position gets inside your final threshold, it closes it. That's it. Like no other decisions involved. There's no logic. There's no thought. It just, it's too close and we're going to close it. It could be a winner, could be a loser, could be far out of the money and a winner, far in the money and a loser, whatever. It's just going to close it. But I like, and we added this additional switch, which presents new logic at the end of the branch for intelligent expiration week management. And so the thought process around this is not that it's totally the best thing in the whole world and it's more intelligent than anything anybody can do. It's just having the bot make extra decisions at a time where those decisions become more important. So the first decision that the bot makes is simply to see if the position is challenged. Like me and Ryan, when we were going through this, I think what I was arguing when we were not arguing, but we were discussing this back and forth was like- Discussing lovingly. (laughs) Discussing lovingly with aggressive words. If I'm five days from expiration and I've got a short put spread, and I'm not profitable, right? I haven't hit any of my profit targets, but I'm maybe I'm not losing money either. Maybe I'm up a dollar and I'm five days from expiration. I would want the bot to evaluate if that position is actually being challenged or not. Like, is the stock trading under my short put strike? Because if the stock is not trading under my short put strike, I'm willing to let it go. In my case now, because I use automated trading, another 15 minutes, right? I'll evaluate it at every 15-minute interval or let my body evaluate it at every 15-minute interval because I'm not in a position where the, the actual core position is challenged yet. So that's the first set of decisions that we have the bot make. Is we And again, you can open up the position challenged decision right there and you can see it's a lot of and or decisions because it's evaluating the different types that the bot might have. But it's trying to see like, is the position challenged or not? Down the no path, if the position, and this is an important part because you have to really think this out all the way to the end, right? Like every different outcome that the bot could have on positions, I think you should think out. We didn't think all these out in the beginning. We added them as we went and stress test our logic, right? But let's say that your position is inside your expiration threshold. You've turned on intelligent expiration and the position never gets challenged. Well, what do you do in that scenario? So what if the stock you sold a put spread at, you know, a hundred strike was your short strike, and the stock trades at one hundred and twenty-five cents for the next five days, whatever. But it never really gets challenged. So down the no path, we have the bot evaluate like a last-ditch effort of does the position expire in less than a market day, and is the market time after eleven o'clock, right? Like, is it? Are we that close to expiration? And we're not in the early morning hours and liquidity has you know, come in probably by that point at 11 o'clock. If we're there and the position isn't challenged, okay, I'm okay letting the position completely 100% be closed because it's just too close. It's too close where it could be a full loser, full winner. So if I haven't had a profit yet and I'm on the edge with a day to go, I want to be out. And remember you're past the 
it's like second DTE threshold of like inside of 20 market days and you don't have a 25% profit or however you set those inputs, but you're still, you're hovering around break even and you are super duper close to the end of the rope. That literally could be called like gamma, like the gamma risk zone. Like you're on the edge and you're super close and you haven't had a profit, you haven't had a stop loss, you haven't had anything, like now it's get the position off. But that only happens for, for these a day left and after 11 o'clock in the afternoon. Okay, now let's go down the path of the position being challenged. So again, and I, I just have to stop here at this point and say like, again, this is every single position the Hexabot has. So it's not just all position, it's every single position. It's checking it one by one by one so fast, so cool. So let's say any position that you have in the Hexabot now is in your expiration week threshold, you have intelligent management turned on, and it's challenged, meaning that the stock is trading below a short strike or above a short strike, depending on what types of trades you have. Now, what do you want the bot to do? In our case, we thought that there's got to be some threshold. I guess this is where we, we went back and forth on this a lot, but my take on this was being challenged on a position is not enough for me. If I was a manual trader, being challenged on a position is not enough for me to say, get rid of the position. Let's say we have a stock that is trading at 99.99 and we sold the 100 strike short put, like we've been using as an example throughout this podcast. Literally, the stock is challenging our position by a penny. Now, in the bot's eyes, because the bots are just looking at the data, the bot passed the first is the position challenge decision because the stock is trading below the short put strike. The stock is trading at $99.99, $99.99, which is a penny below our short call strike, our short put strike, which is 100 in this example. I do not think, this is just me, so you can set your thresholds wherever you want. I don't think that's enough to say, yes, close the position inside a week to go. I would rather wait. I would rather try to figure out if the stock is trading deep in the money below my short strikes. So what we did is we introduced another decision that is called our intrinsic value threshold. And what you're doing here is you're setting the amount of intrinsic value, which is then basically like determining how far in the money the position is. You're setting your intrinsic value threshold so that only when the stock is challenging your position and challenging it enough, like deep enough in the money beyond your intrinsic value threshold, would you consider closing the position? Now, in my case, for all the hexabots that I run, just because I'm trying to be open and clear about the way that I run mine, I set my short strike intrinsic value threshold to one, meaning that the stock is not challenging my position. And this is for most of the tickers. Some tickers are a little bit higher because they're higher price securities, right? But for most of the tickers that I run, it's set to one because if the stock is challenging my position by a couple pennies, I don't care. I'm willing to let it go to the next, again, you don't have to let it go further. It can go to the next scanning interval, which is in 15 minutes. So you evaluate it on a case-by-case scenario. But if it ever goes beyond, let's say a dollar in the money, and now the stock is not trading at $99.99, but now trading at $99 or $98.99. Okay, yeah, I'm willing to let the, the bot manage the position and 
take the position off. I, it could be a small winner, could be a small loser, could be a scratch trade, but I, it's so it's starting to go the opposite direction of what I would want. And so therefore I let the, the stock go. I let the, or let the bot take the position off. Now, the one thing I'll say real quick, and I know you want to jump in here too, Ryan, is because this is an input, it is going back to what we said in the beginning, where we're creating these hexabots specific to tickers. If you're trading Amazon, for example, Amazon could trade up or down by a dollar in five minutes, right? So your threshold, because the strikes are bigger, right? The ticker is bigger. Your strikes threshold for intrinsic value might be $10 or $15, right? It may not be as low as a dollar. So please make it specific to the tickers you're trading and just use some intelligent thought around that. And remember, this is within what you've already identified as your expiration week timeframe, like the position expires inside whatever you've determined is your final DTE threshold. And so if that number is 10 days, you may view this intrinsic value threshold differently. If it's five days, you may see it the, use the $1 example that we just used. I think that like, some people just don't like holding positions closer to expiration. Like just, I would rather like sell that position, close that position and move on to the next one. Like open up another slot, try again. Like it's a personal preference. Maybe it, maybe there's, that's leaving money on the table. Maybe that's whatever, but it's just a personal preference. And I think that the great thing about these being inputs is you can change your days to expiration. You can change your intrinsic value threshold and you can determine what these numbers are for you. Yeah. And that's why we wanted to do this. And that, I mean, that's really the whole origin of why we built the platform this way was so that you could do this, so that we could do this, so that we could do this and then share this template, knowing that you could make these modifications for yourself and make them very personal and customizable to you. Now, down this branch, again, if you are beyond that threshold, it starts the process of closing the position, which we'll get to right after this. But if it has not reached that threshold. And again, just like what we saw before, if we are challenged, but we're not challenged enough that would trigger inside the bot that we would close, it's going to go down the no branch and it's going to evaluate if the position expires again in less than a market day. If it expires in less than a market day, then we close the position immediately, just like we did at the decision a little bit higher up. And the key here is that we're always giving the bot an out at the very end. So at the very end, if we're challenged or not challenged, it doesn't matter. Like when we're inside a market day, we're going to start closing the position, right? Because we don't want the position. It hasn't worked out. We never hit a profit target, never closed for any of those reasons. So go ahead, take the position off, start closing the positions. That decision to get out at, at that one market day, like again, that is also like dependent upon like where you where you set these other um, inputs and like you can determine if you change your quote unquote inside expiration week threshold to be a, a higher number of calendar days you may say okay i want to be out of this position in less than three market days or four market days. So you can go in and change these to like scale up or down back or forth any of these days to expiration timeframes. Now, here's the last thing I want to talk about. And the reason I want to talk about it last is because you'll see it throughout the entire monitor automation. And it's something that we call the bid-ask spread waterfalls. Now, this is not our original idea. This came from Randy. 
and a bunch of other people in the community, but I think Randy was the first one that we saw. So shout out to Randy for creating this concept around a bid ask spread waterfall for closing positions. Now, the reason that we don't do this in opening positions is because we can evaluate the bid ask spread when we open the position. So a lot of people have already asked questions like, why don't we do this in opening positions? Well, we could if you want to, but you already give the bot the ability to pre-select and evaluate the wide spreads that you would want to accept or not before it even opens the position. What happens though, is that when you get into positions that you have, so positions that are opened in your account, you have no control over those bid-ask spreads, but you do have to manage the position, right? So you're kind of stuck in this, for lack of a better word, like this temporary limbo where you're forced to close a position because of some market criteria that's been hit, but you also have to deal with the bid-ask spread at the time that you're forced to close the position. Does that make sense? I, I'm saying it to you, Ryan, and everyone else, like it does, right? But yeah. it's true. Like you have to deal with the bid-ask spread that you're given at the time that you try to close the position. And you can't control that. You could control it on entry, but you can't control it on exit, but you can control how you interact with the market at exit. And so that's the next piece here. Right. So what happens in the bid-ask spread waterfall is very simple, and it's repeated throughout the monitor automation. You'll see the same decisions and the same sets of criteria repeated throughout. The only thing that changes for those different things is all the tagging that we do to, again, help you automatically tag how and when and under what conditions positions were exited and what the environment was so that you know later on why they were exited, right? And you, and you should bring up that, like, you know, this it's a simple, but like, this is one of those community <laughs> things that I would have never thought would have to never thought about on my, like, just it wasn't even on my radar. And it's like, oh, that's, that's excellent. We've got to, got to incorporate that here. Well, what's, so what's cool about the bid ask spread waterfall is that, and the reason we call it the waterfall or Randy, I think Randy or somebody re- referred to it originally as the waterfall was that it, this idea is that it conceptually works through evaluating the bid-ask spread of a position before sending orders to your broker. And what's so cool about this is that when you do this and you set these levels, and we detail all this out here inside of the community post, inside the template or the community section, we set up and let like show you all the ones that we use and how we set it up. And you can modify it or use the same ones. It doesn't matter, right? But what's so cool about this is that you can adjust how smart pricing works based on how wide the spread is at the time that you are going to exit the position. And the reason you would want to do this is because it allows you, which is so ridiculous to even do this, it allows you to control slippage using an automated system. That's what I think is so cool, is that it's combining two really cool things that you can do not only just evaluating a position's bid-ask spread, but then also using that information to determine and let smart pricing know how far you are willing to let it go with the end result being you can control slippage a lot tighter than you ever could before, ever, like ever, ever, ever could before. It's truly an awesome thing that you should consider adding to all of your bots and templates. So here's how it works. I want to walk through kind of an example here. but This would work in any scenario where you would start introducing the waterfall for any closing reason that you would have. Like you have a profit, you have a a nearing expiration profit, you have a stop loss exit, you have a whatever. You'll notice that the bid-ask spread waterfall is triggered throughout all of these different closing environments. 
So here's what it does. It takes the position and it goes through a series of decisions that look at the bid-ask spread of the position itself. Now, remember, when we're using the scanner automation in, that we talked about earlier in the podcast, we're evaluating the spread before we get into it. Now we have the position, so we still have to evaluate the spread to help us determine how best we can close the position. The first thing that it does is it checks to see if the bid-ask spread is less than bid-ask spread level number one that you set inside of your settings. Now, inside of the Hexabot template, we've set a bunch of default settings. You're free to use those or modify them, but the default settings are as follows. Bid-ask spread level one is 15 cents. So the first decision that the bot's gonna make is it's going to try and evaluate if the bid-ask spread is less than 15 cents. So if you have a short put spread and the bot has somehow triggered that short put spread to be closed, it's gonna check that short put spread and see if the bid-ask spread is less than 15 cents. Let's say the bid-ask spread is 10 cents. If that bid-ask spread is in fact less than 15 cents, then it will go down the yes path and go to the level one pricing close order, which level one pricing, because the spread is so tight and narrow, is going to allow the bot using smart pricing to choose 100% of the bid-ask spread. So think about this logically. All the bot is doing is checking to see if the spread is narrow. And if the spread is narrow, then the, the bot gives smart pricing full reign to go ahead and close the position. Now, smart pricing is still going to try for better pricing, but you've told the, the bot essentially through your actions that, hey, look, the spread is so narrow that you can try all the pricing in the spread because the spread's so narrow to begin with. And so you're setting those parameters, you're defining how much slippage you're willing to accept, and you're determining that amount based off of the bid-ask spread at the time you evaluate it. Right. Now, let's say that the bid-ask spread is not less than 15 cents. So now what it does is it goes to the second step or tier in the waterfall. If the bid-ask spread is not less than 15 cents, then we're going to have the body evaluate whether the bid-ask spread is less than our level two spread tolerance, which again, inside the documentation, you'll see in the template post that level two bid-ask spread is set to 25 cents. So now we're going to say, okay, well, the spread is not more narrow than 15 cents. Is it more narrow than 25 cents? Let's say the spread is 23 cents. So it fails at the first bid-ask spread level, but it passes the second bid-ask spread level and the spread is 23 cents. So the bot goes down the yes path and starts to close the position using level two pricing. Now, this is where it gets really cool because now the bot recognizes that the spread is narrow, but not so narrow like it was earlier. It wasn't less than 15 cents. It's greater than 15, but less than 25. So now the bot uses for its smart pricing settings, level two pricing, which we set at 90% of the bid-ask spread. Now we're telling the bot, hey bot, if the spread is a little bit wider and is now at level two settings, that means that you can use up to 90% of the bid-ask spread. That means don't go the whole spread distance because the spread is a little bit wider than we're willing to accept. So you can go up to 90% of the bid-ask spread. You can still try and it will. It will try for better pricing. 
But if you if it doesn't get better pricing and it sits there and waits through all the different orders, it can go up to 90% of the spread. I got to tell you, like Ryan, as I'm like talking this out, I cannot stop smiling because it's one of the coolest things that like we didn't know, we didn't even think about doing. Like truly. I mean, you're just, you're just saying, I want to exclude that worst part of the bid ask spread, the, the furthest 10% over here out of that spread. Like, let's just ignore that for now. The bid ask spread is wider than we typically prefer. And so we only want to look at 90% of the bid ask spread. So now just take this again, like one other step further, right? So now it does that same process, that stair step, waterfall, sequence process, and it goes through level one, level two, level three, level four, and then level five pricing. We set these inside the bot default as 15 cents, 25 cents, 50 cents, 75 cents, and a dollar respectively. Then each of those level pricings have or bid-ask spreads have an associated setting for smart pricing. We set these as 100% for level one, 90% for level two, 70% for level three, 63% for level four, and 60% for level five. Notice, again, as the spreads go wider, smart pricing gets adjusted down more narrowly, is that a word, (laughs) more narrow, to control slippage on exit. It's the coolest thing in the entire world that you can do. And you can only do it with bots and on. And truly, you can only do it with bots and automations. You cannot do this manually. It just it, it's impossible to do, impossible to consistently get right. And so what I love about the Hexabot monitor, even more than all the different environments and ways that we could close, is its willingness to go through just a mind-numbing amount of data on every position at all times to give you the best possible outcome on your exits. I think it's just one of the coolest things it does. Yeah, because you've got to remember that also, once you get to say level two pricing, 90% of the bid as spread, you're still using normal smart pricing to walk through four different, to try four different prices, you know, over that period of time, canceling and replacing orders for you where you're not even having to do it. Like there's, we are just glossing over a lot of the automation details because they're just like, they feel secondary to the this waterfall to begin with. Right. Now, look, here's the thing that I think is, is cool too. And we see this a lot where people will enter positions and then have a regular monitor automation to close it. They'll use smart pricing, which is fine. And smart pricing is always going to try for better pricing for you. But there has to come a point at which the spread is too wide to even try. That That's the one thing that I thought was something that we wanted, I wanted for sure personally, inside the Hexabot was there's got to be a level of pricing, even temporarily, where it's like, it's not even worth it to try and close the position. Like, I don't care if it goes 50%, just don't even try. Like, pricing is all whacked out. It's crazy. It'll try again later. So if the bid-ask spread is not less than your level five pricing, which for us is set to a dollar, if the bid-ask spread on your position is greater than a dollar, which we know from research, Ryan, like we published research, we know these spreads randomly, even SPY throughout the day can have insanely wide spreads temporarily. Like, right? Like it's just, it's crazy. And so if temporarily- Bit spread research, you know, we, we did an anomalies paper. So take a look at that one. Yeah. And we'll link it up in the show notes page as well. But even SPY, the most liquid thing in the whole world can have really wide spreads randomly throughout the day. So what you're doing here is you're telling the bot, look, 
if the spread is too wide, if it's not at least less than my level five pricing, my level five bid ask spread threshold, which is a dollar, don't even try. And it sends you notification. And this is what I think, this is where the the bot and the human and, and all this can kind of interact if you wanted to, but it sends you a notification that says, heads up, I tried closing a position, but the bid ask spread was too wide. So I'll try again later. It says, don't worry, I've got your back, love your bot, right? That's the way I write it, okay? Because it's gonna try again. It'll try at the next interval. And maybe at the next interval, spreads are more narrow and it tries to fill the trade. But at least you got a notification that the bot was trying to do something you told it it couldn't do because of market conditions. So that might be a case where maybe you do take over manual you know, control and you override that position and you exit the position, set your own pricing. Maybe you do. Or, and this is how I would do it, I would just let the bot continue on its way and let the bot recheck at the next interval and wait till the spreads come in. But either way, this is where you can kind of have that bot give you a heads up and notification on how it's doing and its state and where it's going. Again, I think the bid-ask spread waterfall is one of the coolest things that we put in here as a default template. So there we are. That is the, that's the Hexabot monitor. <laughs> I was going to say, that's it. I don't know how we, how we end that or wrap that up. But at the end of the day, like once you have the bot that's managing positions and doing this, I mean, we've now come full circle from evaluating the positions, getting into positions, managing positions. Again, throughout the monitor automation, we have tagging like crazy all over the place because it's so important to understand the conditions in which your positions were entered and the conditions in which they were closed. I think tagging is something that not a lot of people do enough right now and they should do more. It's so easy to do because you only have to do it a couple times. But once you do you have all that data at your fingertips to then lean on later as you do more research and try to improve your strategy. For example, I'm just looking at one right now in XOP, the tags for one position, this was a short put spread position in XOP live trade. The tags for that position said weak uptrend, oversold, short put spread. So I know that's the environment that it was entered into, which fits with our model, right? And then there's a tag for accelerated profit close. So now I know why the position was closed after a day of being open. It was only open a day, but it was closed because it reached its accelerated profit target. And so maybe I wouldn't have known that before. So I can't overstate how important tagging is and how important it could be for you as you know, using it for record keeping and tracking and stapleness of the bots. I think you're, you're truly going to love it. Yeah, I mean, this this has been such a like incredible process to go through designing this. Now, as we like come back and talk about it here, like on the back end, it's like, man, we there there are a lot of things that went into this, and then we we even like tested it, and we traded it, and then we posted it in the community, and then we got more updates and revisions as a result of other eyes looking at it. So I don't really know where all this is going to go from here, but and you know, just like selfishly, I hope that people don't find a lot of things that like they can throw rocks at it with, but like how many awesome things were we able to incorporate because of community feedback and community brainstorming and ideas to begin with. And so this has been a really, really fun and interesting project. And it's one that like 
we like made because that's it's something that we wanted. And so I think that's one of the neatest things about creating a, a template is when you're doing it because it's a strategy that you want to trade. Yeah. I think the thing that I'll wrap up and end with on my end is that I hope that what we've done in spending so much time documenting this and going through this podcast and recording now hours of you know conversation <laughs> of, of going through this is the important process that I hope people take out of this, which is spending so much time on your strategy. Like I feel like over the last two decades, as trading has become, call it more mainstream, as you start to see more people trade, there's this huge pull and like center of gravity around like shooting from the hip and having all these charts and all these things and coming into the day and you know, getting into and out of positions super fast. And I, I don't want to take anything away from those, but there is something to be said about planning a strategy, about researching it, testing it, see what other additions or changes you can make to it, like learning from other people, you know, taking things that other people do in completely different environments and then adapting it to your environment. You know, like what we did here with some of the ways we did the automations many of the, some of these, these top templates are zero DTE templates. And the Hexabot is the furthest thing from a zero DTE strategy, but we were still able to incorporate really cool ideas and ways people were doing things into this template, even though our timeline and our strategies were in many cases completely different. So if you get nothing else from this podcast, I hope that you get this idea that it's okay to spend a lot of time, invest a lot of time in a planning and research and scripting out and testing and implementing and tweaking and messing with your bots and automations because it's so worth it, because the dividends are so great later on for all the hard work you put in now. For sure. And, um, you know, it's it's almost like this is this is like a victory lap just going through this discussion, but this is like a product of a lot of work that we can be proud of, but it's also a product of like you said, molding things from lots of different things in the community. And it's also just going to save me a lot of time from running a strategy that otherwise would be pulled into running manually. Yeah, exactly. So, all right. So we'll put all this stuff and as much of this as we can inside the show notes over at optionapple.com slash show 223. Most importantly, we'll link up a lot of the videos and other templates and uh, other related podcasts that we talked about here the main write-up is still going to be the best place you can get to. Inside the community, you can just search Hexabot, search Hexabot on the website. We'll put all this up so you guys can get to it and have easy access to it. But we encourage you, and I would love if you could go in there, take a look at it, let us know your thoughts, your ideas. If you have a different version, create a copy and a clone, modify it, send it back to us. Let us know what ways you would improve it or things you would do differently. We are not so, you know, like we're, we're humble enough to know that there's going to be lots of iterations on this thing for sure moving forward. And there's probably things that we could do or other people might want to do. So create your own version, share it back to the community. Let's keep this conversation going for sure. This has been a really fun and challenging bot build. It's definitely not going to be our last. We're working on other bot templates as well and other new awesome builds, but this one was a beast and was for a long, long, long time. So it's good to have this one out there and running. Hope you guys really, really love it. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks for listening to the Option Alpha podcast. If you liked what you heard, please drop by iTunes and leave a rating or comment. Plus, you can get everything 
free email updates for future shows, transcripts, video tutorials, case studies, and more. Just visit our website at optionalpha.com. All right, so that's a wrap for this week's podcast episode here at Option Alpha. But before you go, please let's keep the conversation going. Let us know what you thought about this week's deep dive into the Hexabot story. Like I said in the beginning, this was one of our longest shows that we've recorded, and we really hope you enjoyed all of the details and all of the little tangents and rabbit holes that we went down in today's show. If you did, please let us know, or better yet, give us a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to the Opshafa podcast. It's truly the best way that you can help get this into other traders' hands that are just like yours and help spread the word about what we're doing here at Opshafa. Really quickly before you go, we also want to let you know what we've got coming up and what we've been working on lately. We have a new version of the platform rolling out very soon that includes lots of updates to the back tester and to the, some of the functionality for the bots. So be on the lookout for that as well. In addition, we've also scheduled out a huge list and long schedule of workshops and live demos. So make sure you head on over to Option Alpha, sign up for our email updates to get notified when new workshops go live, when new demos are going out. You're going to love joining some of these workshops and demos where we'll build bots together, go through different trading strategies, different ways you can use automated trading as part of your core trading strategy. You're going to love signing up for some of these really intense sessions that we do during the week. As always, I truly hope you guys enjoyed today's show and got at least one thing out of it that you can apply right now to help you consistently play smarter trades. Until next time, happy trading.